0: happy new year and welcome to the january 2023 edition of right on prime this is the audio space where we talk about all things primary care and generalist family medicine so whether you are in the rural hinterlands or downtown big city
1: get off the road you freaking maniac
0: we have you covered I'm Heidi James, your host today, and I am joined by none other than Vanessa Cardi. Nice way to start off the new year with our mission statement, Heidi. It's great to be back. And hey, why not celebrate the fact that we have the best jobs on the planet, so let's shout it from the rooftops.
1: I love this job. I love helping people. Even if I'm dealing with poo or pee, I still love this Get off the roof, you frickin' maniac.
0: So have you seen anything interesting work-wise, Heidi? Because I know you do love to tell me about your cases. I do. I do. I saw an interesting one over the holidays, actually, Vanessa. And it was a patient of mine who was admitted with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which thankfully presented early and they did quite well with surgical intervention. So I stopped by to see this patient as I was doing rounds and they asked me, hey, so I had an aneurysm that ruptured in my brain. Does my family need to worry about this? Does this run in families? I think my uncle was found dead and the autopsy showed a brain bleed. So is this something I need to worry about for my kids? A very astute patient, and you can really tell that subarachnoid did not have a huge impact on him if he was already thinking about these things.
2: No kidding. And to be honest, I have to admit, I'm always a little scared when people ask questions like this because my Gut wants to answer really quickly right away and be like, of course you do, or no, don't worry about it. And then I sort of go, oh, hang on. I should probably look into this. So you're going to save me that gut wrenching anxiety and you're going to give me the answer, right?
0: Absolutely, because I told my patient I would look it up and get back to them. So the next day I went back to see him and I had the answer. And the answer is yes. Family members should be screened, or at least this is the answer according to the American Heart and the American Stroke Association guidelines. So these guidelines say that anyone with two or more family members with a history of intracranial aneurysm should be screened. So this index patient, there's him and an uncle. So that means family members should be screened. But you know what's interesting about these guidelines is they don't specify how close these family members need to be related. They don't say first degree relative, second degree relative, second cousin, three time remove. The AHA, ASA guidelines are not clear. But most other guidelines on the topic do stipulate that they have to be first or second degree relatives.
2: Well, I kind of like the uh, straightforward idea. Let's just screen everybody in the family who is a blood relative. Screening for all.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that certainly applies to this patient's family. And interestingly, we also want to consider screening for aneurysms in other groups of patients. So patients with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, those with a co of the aorta or bicuspid aortic valve. And also in certain forms of dwarfism and Ehlers-Danlos, like those connective tissue disorders.
2: Oh, Okay, interesting. So what were you say to your patient in this context then?
0: As a good family doctor should do, I said, why don't you tell your family members to come in and talk to me about it? Because each and every member deserves to have their own conversation about screening and its implications.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to have that conversation because patients, as you said, might be pretty anxious about it and how this could potentially impact them. And some people, I mean, there's the question, would they even want to know? While some would never want to know that they have a potential ticking time bomb in their brain, some for sure would want to know so that they can figure out what to do about it. And we also need to consider the implications of having a potential aneurysm or a family history of it for things like driving and flying
0: licenses, life insurances. You know, there's a lot to discuss. And one of the most basic things we need to tell our patients is what screening actually looks like. So breaking down that a little bit, our patients, of course, need neuroimaging. And the American College of Radiology says that this neuroimaging can be done with either a CT angiogram with contrast or an MRA, a magnetic resonance angiogram without contrast. So either one of those is good, depending on what your shop has and what's easy to access. Okay, so let's say we've put the patient through the screening and we find that there is an aneurysm. What do we do then? Well, this is when it's time to defer to the professionals. I mean, we do a lot as generalists, Vanessa, but I feel very confident in saying that my skill set ends at trying to clip intracranial aneurysms. Probably actually ends a little bit before then, but I'm definitely not doing that in my spare time.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I think uh, I tend to agree with you. As much fun as it might be to be able to do these things in the office, um, this is not our field. So often neurosurgery or neurointerventionalists or whatever you have in your network who can look after this.
0: Yeah, and when they see these consultants, our patients can expect a discussion about what the various options are, and these options that are presented to them will depend on some characteristics of the aneurysm, like the size and where it is in the brain and the risk of rupture, and that risk of rupture, as common sense would dictate, is larger the bigger the aneurysm is. They'd also look into such factors as how many aneurysms are there in the patient's overall health. In terms of different ways to actively manage these aneurysms, there's two main techniques. There's clipping the aneurysm, and this is actual neurosurgery where they open the calvarium and go in and find that aneurysm and clip it off. And then there is endovascular coiling, which is more of an interventional radiology procedure where they insert a catheter and it goes up and they release that coiling into the aneurysm and which one they choose will depend probably most likely on the size and the location of the aneurysm
2: it is very upsetting to me that this is an audio only program at this point because <laughs> heidi just acted out a interventional radiology procedure on the screen and if only we could memorialize it <laughs> so it seems like basically there are only surgical options for these patients
0: well i guess that actually does depend on the patient and the aneurysm a lot of people are going to opt for surgery But watchful waiting with repeat imaging at intervals that are decided by the consultant is an option for sure. And this is where a patient's risk tolerance would come into play. So if we have an aneurysm that's less than a centimeter in diameter, the risk of that rupturing is about 0.05% in a year if you've never had a prior aneurysm rupture. And it would be over 1% per year if there's a larger aneurysm. So things to think about, you know, like, do I want to have this procedure or do I want to have a small chance of this rupturing down the road? And in terms of other management options, this is really stuff that's in our wheelhouse. We can help our patients modify risk factors that might make these aneurysms more problematic. So looking after things like hypertension and smoking and alcohol consumption, this is stuff that we can help our patients do to prevent rupture and development of aneurysms overall.
2: Now, what about patients with a family history of aneurysm who we screen and we find no aneurysm? Is that it? Is it screen once and forget about it, or do we need to re screen at certain intervals?
0: Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And we're actually only going to find aneurysms in roughly 4% of first degree relatives of people who have an aneurysm. So we're definitely not going to find aneurysms on the initial screen for most people. But to get to your point about do we need to screen at intervals, we know that if people who have one aneurysm, they're at risk of developing more aneurysms. There was a study that showed that people who had a ruptured aneurysm, there was an aneurysm formation rate of about 06 to 0.9% on an annual basis. So knowing this re-imaging is definitely part of the follow-up for people who've had aneurysms. But what about the people who we don't find aneurysms with on the initial screen? And I had to dig so far to find this answer for Ness. I thought it was going to be, no pun intended, a no brainer. Because if it's the vast majority of people who are not finding an aneurysm on, we should have an answer to this. But after a lot of digging, I found an article in the International Journal of Stroke that recommended rescreening about every five years for these patients.
2: Okay, that seems pretty reasonable. So if you don't find an aneurysm, rescreen in five years. And in that interval, hopefully do your best to manage things like hypertension, smoking alcohol intake, the things that increase your risk of having that aneurysm and it rupturing.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You got it.
2: Let me see if I can sum this up. So if a patient comes in and they have had two or more family members who've had intracranial aneurysms, you should offer them screening by either a CT angio or MR angio. But be sure to go over the pros and cons of screening, obviously, before you send them down that path. If an aneurysm is found, off they go to the experts to discuss whether they're going to go for surgical management or more conservative therapy. And if we don't find an aneurysm, then you can re-screen them in five years, and in the meantime, work on prevention, like smoking cessation, managing hypertension,
0: all that good stuff. You got it, Vanessa Cardi. You are now a certified intracranial aneurysm expert.
2: Well, that's an exciting title to have, and an incredibly false one, but I'll take it. All right, well, that was great. Thank you so much for the helpful review. It's good to have these little nuggets to be able to take to the bedside because it can certainly put us on the spot. And uh, speaking of reviews, why don't you tell everyone what we've got in store for this month's Right On Prime?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Steve and Ken are back. Then we're joined by a bevy of our fantastic educators. We have Penny Wilson. Adrian Saleem and Chris Drem, who each bring us quality CME to help us be even better healthcare providers. And of course, don't forget our rural med and urgent care content too. It is quite the lineup. It's a lineup befitting a new year. It certainly is. So see you on the other side for the summary.
3: Hello, Vanessa Cardi.
2: Hello, Adrian. How are you? What are you here to talk to us about today?
3: I wanted to talk about PMR.
2: PMR being what exactly?
3: I guess I should start with that, right? Polymyalgia rheumatica, PMR.
2: Okay, let's hear what you've got to say.
3: PMR is an inflammatory condition, and it exclusively affects patients over 50 years old. But it's more common in elderly patients. So, the peak incidence is somewhere between 70 to 80 years old. There's a relatively high incidence in people who have Northern European and Scandinavian background. And it's not, you know, super common, but it's also not really rare either. Like I think on average, I was thinking about this today. I think I probably diagnose like two to three patients with PMR a year from my practice, exclusively emergency medicine.
2: And I think it's probably something that's a little bit overlooked, like we forget about it to, on first presentation. So definitely a good thing to review. So give us an idea of how these patients present. I think we're all aware of the classic shoulder and hip girdle pain and stiffness that they tend to have, but could you get a bit more into the details?
3: Yeah, you're right. So the hallmark is bilateral pain in the shoulders and the hips. The pain is often poorly localized. So the patients will complain of kind of shoulder pain, proximal arm pain, sometimes neck pain, but it's not like one specific area that hurts, just sort of kind of like a general kind of pain. And then for the lower extremities, patients will feel it mostly in their hips and their proximal thighs. But the upper extremity pain is more common and it's more prominent on average than, than the lower extremity pain.
2: And what about stiffness as a feature?
3: It's mostly morning stiffness, but it can also be after prolonged inactivity. And in my experience, a stiffness is really what seems to affect patients the most. Like they have a really hard time doing their stuff that they normally do at home, their usual activities of daily living. Classically, you'll see in the textbooks, patients are going to have a hard time brushing their hair or for women putting on their bra, like reaching back around is going to be really hard because of the stiffness. Now, I've noticed when I'm going to examine a patient who I'm suspecting has PMR, I think one of the signs that I just see that like really hits home of how stiff they are, you know, normally a male, you know, 75 years old, they're always wearing buttoned up shirts, you know, and so they take off their buttons and then they go to take off their, their shirt, but they just can't because they're just so stiff. So I have to kind of help them. So I've noticed that if the patient's having a hard time taking off their shirt, it's pretty clearly it's going to be PMR.
2: Is that the slim sign? Yeah. Saleem sign. I like it. Okay. So the patient's got a Saleem sign. Any other signs that uh, they might present with?
3: Yeah. And the other thing that you'll see, and you see this in textbooks too, that they have a hard time getting up from a seated position. And sometimes we think that it's proximal muscle weakness, but they really shouldn't be weak. It's really stiffness that's the problem. And another thing that these patients can have are constitutional symptoms. So they might be complaining of things like fatigue or weight loss or fever.
2: And what about the timing of these symptoms? Do they tend to come on um, acutely or is it more subacute?
3: Yeah. So they tend to come on pretty acute. Sometimes it can be really acute. Like, you know, some patients will say it just came on almost overnight, you know, that they got these symptoms. But in my experience, most of the time, it's more kind of subacute happening over, you know, one to three weeks kind of thing. It really shouldn't be chronic though. So if a patient's coming in and they've had pain for like eight months, you know, this is not PMR.
2: So I remember seeing a patient who I thought had PMR, but they also had evidence of arthritis on their physical exam. So I was thrown for a bit of a loop. Is arthritis something that's going to be seen along with PMR or as part of PMR?
3: Yeah, so patients with PMR may also have evidence of joint inflammation on their exam. And the most common joints involved are the MCPs, the wrists and the knee. And another thing that could throw you for a loop is that PMR can also cause like carpal tunnel syndrome, can cause bursitis. So it can really kind of muddy the waters a little bit when these patients have those kinds of symptoms.
2: As if rheumatology wasn't confusing enough, my goodness. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into investigations. If you suspect someone has PMR, what are you going to do? I'm assuming that inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP will be elevated, but can we like hang our hat on them completely and say slam dunk, here we are?
3: Yeah, I've seen a sensitivity of like 90% with an ESR of over 40. So some patients can still have PMR with a normal or not overly elevated ESR, although it is not that common. Now, CRP is supposed to be more sensitive. So if you have a patient who has both a normal ESR and a normal CRP, I think you have to start questioning the diagnosis because PMR is very unlikely in this case. If you get a CBC, what you'll see is some patients will have a normocytic anemia and they could also have thrombocytosis.
2: But you don't need those to make the diagnosis. Is that correct?
3: You definitely don't need them to make the diagnosis. And it's, I don't know how sensitive it is. I don't think, you know, it's super sensitive, but you—it it is one of the findings that you can see in PMR.
2: Okay. So it helps sort of put the picture together. Okay. What about imaging? Is there any role for that in these patients?
3: So not really. You know, ultrasound of the shoulders can show things like a subacromial or subdeltoid bursitis. If you get an ultrasound of the hips, you can see trochanteric bursitis. But ultrasound is definitely not required. Now, having said that, there are a few kind of newer diagnostic criteria that do include ultrasound findings in their criteria. So it could potentially help you If you're not really sure of the diagnosis and you want a little bit more data points to kind of put everything together, but if the diagnosis is fairly clear, you certainly don't need ultrasound or or imaging in that case.
2: Why don't you speak a little bit about those diagnostic criteria that are out there if you can?
4: Diagnostic
3: criteria. Yeah, so there's a few of them from a few different organizations. I don't think we have to go over each one, but they're all pretty much include the same sort of basic elements. So they have things like, you know, age over 50. Bilateral shoulder pain, bilateral hip pain, morning stiffness, and then elevated inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP. Some also include a prompt improvement with corticosteroids because PMR responds really, really well to steroids. And we're going to get into the treatment in just a few seconds. So some actually have that as a diagnostic criteria as well.
2: Okay, so if you have PMR on your radar and the patient has a textbook case of it, it sounds like this should be a fairly straightforward diagnosis. I suppose the main differentials that you'd be worrying about would be things like muscular pain. Perhaps a frozen shoulder, but if you think about muscular pain or frozen shoulder generally, it's going to usually be unilateral and it's probably going to be more of a chronic issue, and I guess inflammatory markers like ESR and CRP should not be elevated in these cases yeah,
3: exactly, and I think you could probably put osteoarthritis in that category as well again, it's going to be more unilateral, maybe bilaterally, but mostly unilateral it's going to be more of a chronic issue, so I think that that's the main differentiating factors of those ones. one of the more tricky differential diagnoses would be Inflammatory arthritis, so things like rheumatoid arthritis or the seronegative bondal arthropathies, and this would be especially true if the patient has arthritis associated with their PMR, right? So the first patient that I ever saw who ended up getting diagnosed with PMR, she presented with bilateral shoulder pain, but she also had synovitis of her MCPs, and it really just threw me off, and it led to a delay in the diagnosis. I didn't make the diagnosis in the end; if someone else did, but it was really tricky. I was thinking more of you know rheumatoid arthritis because of her hand involvement. So if there is a concern about rheumatoid arthritis or an inflammatory arthritis, you know, it's, it's probably a good idea to send off things like a rheumatoid factor, an CCP antibodies, that sort of stuff. Now, response to corticosteroids could also be a tip-off here because, again, PMR is very responsive to steroids. Rheumatoid arthritis and, and the other inflammatory arthritis, they are also somewhat responsive to steroids, but not to the same degree as, as that PMR is. So that could be a, a tip-off there. And sometimes it's really hard to differentiate this, and it's, we're going to need some help with the diagnosis. So in that case, I think a, a referral to rheumatology may be necessary. Treatment.
2: Okay, so now we've teased sort of the treatment topic a little bit. Why don't we talk a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, okay. So like we've said a few times now, prednisone is the mainstay of treatment, and it normally works really well for it. So the usual starting dose is 15 milligrams once a day. And generally, there should be a dramatic response after about one to three days. And it might not be 100% better, but patients should expect to have a pretty good improvement pretty soon after. So some patients may require a bit of a higher dose. If they're not getting a clear response from that 15 milligrams, they may need a bit higher, like 20 or 25 milligrams. And normally, that initial dose is continued for about three to four weeks, and then at which point, a very slow taper can be started. So depending on what reference you're looking at, you can see different regimens, but one of the regimens that I've been seeing is going down to twelve and a half milligrams for two to four weeks, then 10 milligrams for four to six weeks, and then reduce the dose by two and a half milligrams every two to three months. So patients can expect to be on steroids for about one to two years, so a fairly long time.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important to set expectations with these patients because, you know, they may have had prednisone for, I don't know, a bronchitis, or they may have had family members who've used prednisone for a few days, but we really need to let them know this is going to be a while. Right. Okay, so what about relapses? As far as I'm aware, and again, I'm no expert in PMR, but it seems like they're pretty common, is that correct?
3: Yeah, so symptom relapses are pretty common, especially with prednisone dose reductions or if it's being tapered off too quickly. Now, the patient that I mentioned earlier, the one who I thought maybe had rheumatoid arthritis, she would get relapses predictably every time we got down below seven and a half milligrams. It was like clockwork, her symptoms would flare up again. Now, it's interesting to know that inflammatory markers, they also tend to go up with the clinical relapses, so you can kind of use that as a marker as well. Now, if a relapse does occur, you can increase the dose of prednisone, and then try again after a few weeks to try and taper it back down again. Now, there is some evidence that for patients with frequent relapses that methotrexate can be used as an adjunct, but it's not entirely clear. So if the patient is having frequent relapses and they're really difficult to taper, I think a rheumatology consult is very reasonable in that case.
2: And of course, don't forget about bone protection for these patients who are on chronic steroid doses. They're on these steroids for a long time, so we need to think about that. And they're going to need to be screened for osteoporosis and will likely benefit from bisphosphonates. Now lastly, we know that giant cell arteritis and PMR tend to go hand in hand. So what do we need to know about giant cell arteritis for these particular PMR patients?
3: Yeah, you're right. So giant cell arteritis, GCA, also known as temporal arteritis and pmr they are overlapping conditions so as a reminder gca is a medium to large vessel arteritis and it has an affinity for that temporal artery so similar to pmr it also affects patients over 50 years old it also has that peak incidence at around 70 to 80 years old and also seems to affect people with northern european or scandinavian heritage a bit more frequently so about 50% of patients who are diagnosed with GCA will also have PMR, but only about 20% of patients who have PMR will develop GCA. Does that make sense? Yep, totally. So another thing to know about GCA is that it can occur at any point during the patient's course with PMR. So it can occur, you know, at the diagnosis of PMR, they might have symptoms of GCA. It could come on, you know, during treatment for PMR, symptoms can come on with GCA. So it could actually even happen afterwards. So if the patient is in remission from their PMR, they're off steroids, they can then develop symptoms of GCA. Now, Cardi, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you remember the symptoms of of GCA?
2: I hate it when you do this, but um, yes, I always think about new headaches starting in a patient over the age of 50. And then I guess the textbook answer would be that temporal headache. But really, in reality, it could be anywhere the headache and even scalp pain could be the symptom. Jaw claudication is another typical symptom. And then those visual changes like the blurry vision, diplopia, or amorosis fugax. And of course, the main worry with GCA, why we really get our knickers in a twist, is the whole possibility that it could lead to
3: permanent visual loss. So we need to be thinking about this. Exactly. So we certainly don't want to miss it because it could lead to permanent visual loss, right? So Cardi, now for bonus points, you're going to hate me even more. What are the main physical findings that you'll see with someone with GCA? GCA
2: The classic finding that I always think about is tenderness over the temporal artery. You might also feel like a sort of thickened artery there, like a palpable cord or some nodules in the artery, and the pulse may be absent there.
3: Yeah, exactly. You're very smart, Cardi.
2: It helps having the written in
3: front of me. (laughs) Perfect, exactly. And similar to PMR, inflammatory markers are often going to be elevated as well. So it's important to warn patients of these symptoms and that if they develop anything like that, they really need to come in urgently to be seen because again we really don't want them to have any permanent visual symptoms. So, you know, if you tell them if they start getting, you know, any visual symptoms at all, if they're getting any new headache or they're getting that jaw claudication, they really need to come in soon. Now, I would also screen patients for GCA symptoms at the initial diagnosis of PMR and then also on subsequent follow-up visits. And then I think it's a good idea if you're seeing them and you're seeing them in follow-up or even on diagnosis, just to feel their temporal artery to make sure you don't see any of those physical exam findings.
2: Yeah, and if you do find them, then refer them urgently for a temporal artery biopsy, because that's, of course, how we're going to uh, clinch the
3: diagnosis. Now, it's important to know that if you suspect GCA, the dose of prednisone is higher than it is for PMR. So the starting dose is usually 40 to 60 milligrams once a day, compared to the lower dose for PMR, you know, 15 milligrams once a day. And if the patient has any visual symptoms at all, they require super high pulse dose steroids. So somewhere between 500 to 1000 milligrams of IV methylprednisolone. IV Solimedrol, And that's once a day for three days. And then after that, they'll start on that that dose of P.O. prednisone.
2: Now, I still hear sometimes that surgeons are going to ask us to hold off on giving steroids until after the biopsy is done, but it doesn't affect the results of the biopsy. So in my mind, that makes no sense, right? You want to start the steroids as soon as you suspect GCA because any delay can lead to permanent visual loss. This is a really time critical diagnosis. The biopsy results are not going to be affected by starting prednisone. And as long as they have the biopsy done within two weeks of starting it. So do not delay. Can I say that again? Do not delay the prednisone. All right, Adrian. So that was a great discussion, great overview. How about you give us a few points in closing summary?
3: Recap. PMR is an inflammatory condition that tends to affect older adults. Classic symptoms are bilateral shoulder and hip pain and morning stiffness tends to come on fairly acutely. Make sure to look for signs of joint inflammation because that can accompany PMR. Labs, I do a CBC, a CRP, and and an ESR. Imaging is not required, but sometimes ultrasound can give you a hand in the diagnosis. Uh, Treatment is pretty straightforward. It's steroids. Don't forget about bone protection because these patients are often on steroids for the long term. And Remember, there is quite a bit of crossover between GCA and PMR. So take those GCA-like complaints very seriously.
2: Thank you so much for covering this topic. I think it's easy for us to forget this. And don't forget to look out for that famous Salim sign, which everybody is going to now teach in medical schools. Thank you so much, Adrian.
3: Thank you, Vanessa Cardi. (laughs) (laughs) Bye.
5: old man in cardiac arrest, and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of sole medron.
6: Staff. What are you, MacGyver? No, I'm
4: the Generalist.
6: generalist.
2: Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and welcome back to The Generalist, and I am pleased to welcome back in turn Penny Wilson, too, who's going to give us a chat about the newborn examination. In other words, when we do it, why we do it, and kind of how we go about doing it. All right, so you're going to give us a run through here, and there's going to be a fair amount of detail, so people might need to go back and re-listen, but this is a really great overview of all the things that we need to think of when we're doing an examination of the newborn child.
7: The newborn examination is exactly as it sounds. It's a top-to-toe, a back-to-front examination of the newborn infant in combination, as always, with a pertinent history. Now, it has several purposes. So firstly, we want to detect any immediate health threats requiring urgent management or referral. We want to detect any congenital or developmental anomalies and identify any investigations or follow ups that may be required. Now, the timeframe of this is usually within the first day of life, but up to 48 to 72 hours is generally considered acceptable.
2: And so just to clarify here, we're not talking about the initial resuscitation period and APGAR scoring that occurs in the first 5 to 10 minutes of life. This is more of a detailed secondary survey. So where does this examination ideally happen?
7: So ideally this happens in a sufficiently warm and well-lit environment. Babies do get cold very quickly. It would happen in a safe place with a flat surface such as a bassinet or a cot, so not in the mother's bed. And ideally, one or both parents will be present to allow them to ask questions and observe the process. History. Okay, so let's
2: move on to the first step, because any time we talk about anything in medicine, it's always going back to the history, right? And the nice thing about family medicine is that we can really potentially be both the maternity doctor and the baby doctor. So hopefully we're going to know a lot of this relevant history already. But just in case, because sometimes we do round on the wards and end up seeing babies that we didn't deliver or that we weren't involved with the prenatal care for. So what are some of the important things that we want to know that we need to tease out?
7: Yeah, so we've got a few different factors involved here. So we want to know the first step is the maternal health issues. So was the mum on any particular medication? So particularly SSRIs or other psychiatric drugs? Was she taking opioid medications? Was there any alcohol or substance use? or did she have any other relevant medical concerns? Is there a relevant family history, so particularly regarding congenital anomalies? And then we want to go to the pregnancy itself. So do we know the results of any chromosomal screening that was undertaken? Were there any fetal anomalies on the scans? Did any complications arise during the pregnancy? And the common one there would be gestational diabetes. And another one that sometimes we don't think about is, was the uh, fetus breach at 36 weeks or later? Because that's something important for risk factors for hip dysplasia and the GBS status. The next thing is the details of the labour and or the delivery. So the time and date of the baby's birth. What was the type of delivery? Was it an elective or an emergency cesarean section? Was it an induced labour? spontaneous vaginal delivery or instrumental or some combination of all of those things? And then were there any labor complications? So maternal fever, APH or bleeding, prolonged rupture of membranes, etc. A few other useful things to know is the maternal blood group, plus or minus the cord group, which is the baby's blood group, and antibodies, as that tells us about the risk of jaundice. And then the baby themselves, did they need resus when they were born? What was their birth weight, uh, birth length, and head circumference? And how have they been going since then? So their urine and meconium output, feeding, and are there any parental concerns? Okay, so that's
2: a pretty sort of comprehensive view of the things that we need on history.
7: Now let's go on to the examination next. So how do you structure the examination?
4: Approach to Examination
7: There's a natural top-down flow to a newborn examination, but you have to be a bit opportunistic with babies because sometimes they just cry at the most inconvenient times. So a few little tips is we want to listen to the heart when the baby is quiet before they start wailing. We want to check the red reflex of the eyes, also known as the fundal reflex. While the baby has their eyes open, because it is very difficult to prise open the edematous eyelids of a crying newborn, We want to palpate the femoral pulses while the baby is calm, and we want to inspect the palate when the baby is crying and the mouth is wide open. And they all cry pretty much at some point during the examination, so there's opportunities for that.
2: Yeah, I remember examining a newborn baby once, and the mum said, you skipped the baby's mouth after I looked at the eyes. I'm like, oh, the mouth is going to open very (laughs) soon. That's right. Just a second. (laughs) I'm about to put my cold hands onto this baby's femoral pulses. (laughs) Be prepared. We're going to see the back of this kid's throat. That's it. All right. So perhaps we can talk through each body region in terms of what we need to look for, some of the common things and the sort of red flags that you might be uh, looking for, and also some little tips and tricks on how to examine each particular region. So um, I guess maybe start generally, and then we'll go in a bit
5: more specific.
4: General inspection.
7: Yeah, so general inspection, as always, we're looking at vital signs like temperature, heart rate, and respiratory rate. Keeping in mind that normal rates for babies and newborns are much faster than older kids or adults. So respiratory rate up to 60 and pulse rate up to 160 or 170, pretty normal. We're looking at the respiratory effort and symmetry of the chest, noting any increased work of breathing, recessions, tracheal tug or grunting. We're looking for general colour, so is there pallor? Is there cyanosis and remembering that acrocyanosis, so blue hands and feet, is common in the first 24 hours or so, but central cyanosis is pathological. And also jaundice, which again is pathological in the first 24 hours always. And also having a bit of a general check of the baby's tone. So are they in a normal flexed kind of posture or are they totally floppy? Okay, and now we're
2: going to start our head to toe, assuming the kid is cooperating
4: head and face.
2: Let's start maybe at the head and the face. What do we need to look for?
7: Starting with the head, we want to check the general shape of the skull, the size and the quality of the fontanelles. So are they sunken or bulging or normal? We're going to palpate the cranial sutures, which in the first couple of days may be overlapping or so-called molding. One of the things that always confused me a lot when I was a medical student and a resident was all the
2: different types of swelling that can happen in a baby's head? Because sometimes babies come out if they've had a vaginal delivery and they can look kind of alarming. They've got a bunch of swelling in different places, but some of these are normal and some of them aren't. So can you go through the different swelling that we might see on a baby's head?
7: Yeah, definitely. And as somebody who's often uh, wielding the instruments, I feel like I'm responsible for some of these swellings, but some of them just happen. So the one that just can happen from the pressure on the presenting part, pressing down on the cervix, during labour is called caput succidaneum, which is a kind of a firm swelling. It may cross the suture lines and it goes down really quickly. A different type of swelling is a cephalohematoma. Now, that has more of a bruised appearance. It is typically in the size and shape of the vacuum cup and in the position where the cup was. And it is a subperiosteal hemorrhage, so it does not cross the suture lines. It sticks to one. Of the cranial bones. Again it usually settles fairly quickly but can increase the risk of jaundice so keep an eye out for that. But the one you really don't want to miss is the subgaleal hemorrhage. Now this occurs above the periosteum so it can cross the suture lines and become a very large fluctuant mass that is potentially life-threatening as the baby can go into hypovolemic shock. Yeah, if you see this,
2: you need to call for help from neonatology and prepare for resuscitation because this can portend badness, as they say eloquently.
7: Okay, so now let's move on to the face. Yep, so we're going to note any trauma such as bruising from a forceps blade. We're going to look for rashes or birthmarks. And the common sort of birthmarks that we see are a nevus simplex, also known as a stalk bite or a salmon patch or an angel kiss, which is a flat pink or red patch. The other common type would be a strawberry hemangioma, which is a raised red lump, which usually doesn't need any special treatment unless it's interfering with vision, breathing or feeding. So that would be close to the eyes or mouth. We're also going to look for general symmetry and facial feature positioning and anything that might look a bit dysmorphic. So epicanthic folds, close set eyes, low set ears, etc. Eyes. Moving on to the eyes now, those eyes that are hard to pry open. Yeah. It's uh, pretty common for newborns to have sticky eyes or discharge. And this is, again, usually benign, but occasionally can represent conjunctivitis, particularly if the the whites of the eyes, the conjunctiva themselves are injected. Again, we're going to check the red reflex or fundal reflex at an opportunistic time to have a look for things like congenital cataracts or retinoblastoma. One little thing here, because we always call it the red reflex, but it isn't always red. Am I right? Yeah, in darker-skinned babies in particular, it might be more of a light pink or a yellow-white colour, but the one that you're looking out for is the pure white flashback, which requires urgent ophthal review. And another common finding in the eyes is the subconjunctival hemorrhage, which is common and benign. And out of interest, in
2: Australia, do they tend to put erythromycin ointment onto babies' eyes? Soon after birth, or is that something that's not done? No, either?
7: that's not a thing that's done here, which always seemed to me one of those funny North American things. Because that can be something that catches you out where you see a baby and you
2: it's good before you freak out when you see the discharge and you think, you know, why is this so goopy? And then you find out, oh, they literally just had urethra ointment like swiped across their face. So, ask the nurse when they had the ointment put on. <laughs> that's a great uh, comment, yes.
4: Ears.
7: So now moving on to the wee ears. Yep. So you want to have a look at the general shape and size of the ears. A couple of things you might see are just in front of the pinna are some skin tags, accessory auricles or preauricular pits. Now these findings are typically benign if they're an isolated finding, but can be more serious if they're associated with other abnormalities on the exam. And we actually
2: discussed the preauricular findings in infants in September 2019, right on Prime. So that's something you can always go back and listen to if you want to hear more about these little pits and uh, little abnormalities.
7: And the other thing that's a good thing to do is a routine hearing test for babies in those first few days of life as well. Mouth. Now let's move on to the mouth. Yep, so again, opportunistic examination for this one, but we need to both inspect and palpate the palate for clefts. Sometimes they're submucosal so you wouldn't necessarily see them and sometimes they're hard to feel as well. So you need to do both. And we're also going to do a bit of an oromotor assessment of the tongue. So looking at tongue movement, the lingual frenulum and signs of potential tongue tie such as tethering. So we've done most of the face, now we're moving down, next comes the neck.
2: This is like that song, the leg bones connected to the hip bone.
3: (laughs) The knee bone's connected to the red thing. The red thing's connected to my wristwatch. Uh-oh.
7: Um, yeah, if you're ever in doubt, just sing that little song and you'd be right on track. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Neck.
7: Okay, so next, pretty straightforward. We're just going to palpate the clavicles for a step deformity or crepitus that might indicate a fracture and also for masses like hygroma.
2: So now we've got the head and neck done. We can move down to the upper limbs. And this is, of course, again, assuming that the baby is completely cooperative and, you know, you're doing this in perfect order. But uh, Mm -hmm. if you ever get thrown off because the baby's screaming and you're doing something else, you know, just go back to the top and think, okay, I've done that, done that. Keep moving down and, and you'll be able to cover it all.
4: Upper Limb.
7: Again, with everything with babies, it's symmetry and movement. Okay, so asymmetry of the arm movements may indicate a fracture or a nerve palsy from birth trauma. So things like brachial plexus injuries can um, show up like this. We will check the brachial pulses and we are going to look for the palmar creases. A single palmar crease is normal if it's unilateral, but if it's bilateral, it may be one of the dysmorphic features. And the other thing that's crucially important is that we count the fingers.
2: It's so true, eh? because I think we've all probably heard stories of extra fingers which are actually missed and only noticed by the parents days later. So it's hard to convince the parents who've done a thorough exam if they realize that you missed extra digits a few days later. So. Yeah, it's
7: kind of it's kind of amazing how like a sixth finger can just look so normal that you don't even notice it when you look at it.
2: Yeah, because you're focused on other, you know, red flag scary mm. things. And then you're like, oh, hang on. <laughs> Particularly when their hands are bunched up, right? (laughs) Because often their hands are clenched up in the first little while. So, okay. So now we've done the upper limbs. Hopefully everything's normal. Now we're moving more centrally onto the chest. Chest. And we've already mentioned some of the signs of respiratory distress to keep an eye out for, but what else are we looking for when we look at that chest?
7: Yeah, we're going to do a good heart and lung auscultation with an appropriately sized um, pediatric or neonatal stethoscope, hopefully when the baby's quiet at this point. So we are looking for murmurs. Now, in some hospitals, SATS probe monitoring is routinely done to help detect congenital heart disease and then in- increase the sensitivity of this examination. That's not routine everywhere, but it certainly is becoming more common. But either abnormal SATS probe readings or murmurs need referral to neonatology or peds cardiology. And we're also going to palpate the chest wall. So, breast buds, common and benign, and typically go down, and that's another maternal hormone effect. And we're also going to note any chest wall deformities, such as pectus excavatum or carinatum.
4: Abdomen.
2: Hopefully we're seeing a nice little healthy, happy baby tummy. uh, Tell me what we're looking for specifically.
7: Presumably any major defect of the abdominal wall, like a gastroschisis or exomphalos, would have been identified before birth or shortly afterwards. So hopefully we wouldn't be the first person identifying that. So generally, we're just going to be looking for things like distension. We're going to palpate for masses and noting that the liver edge is pretty commonly palpable one or two centimetres below the costal margin in newborns. We're going to inspect the umbilical stump for signs of infection. And it's very normal for the cord to still be attached in the first two, three days of life. It typically doesn't fall off until about six or seven days after birth, in case you are wondering about the timeframe of that. Now, a sticky or mucky stump is pretty common, but the thing you don't want to see is cellulitis with erythema spreading onto the surrounding skin, because that is more concerning for omphalitis or infection, which needs antibiotics. And then the next thing down from the abdomen is to palpate the femoral pulses, usually with freezing cold hands, as you said, (laughs) which is always a bit triggering for baby crying. But also note that femoral pulse palpation can be pretty tricky when you haven't done it much. You do really need a quiet baby and it's often a little more medial than you think it's going to be. And I typically just use my index fingers to try and feel that little sort of tap, 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 tap pulse there.
2: Yeah, and I had a staff once who suggested to me that if the baby's crying and they're happy and they're still in their onesie and they're all cozy and if it's just a onesie, you might be able to just get your finger in there while they're sort of snuggled up and still warm. Because otherwise if you've got cold hands and they're cold and they're all exposed and you put your finger on, they're going to scrunch their legs up and then they're going to start screaming. So it's you're going to be stuck for a while. But if you can get in there while they're lying and they're still in their PJs, you might be able to get a better femoral pulse reading.
4: Genitalia and anus.
2: Okay, but now we're heading down to the diaper area and we're going to have a look at the genitals. And this can be a particularly high risk moment, particularly when it comes to the little boys.
7: Yeah, we've all been peed on by a baby. You know, it kind of comes with the territory but you do tend to develop fast reflexes to pop that diaper back over the top uh, to intercept the oncoming stream. So that's a very useful skill for newborn uh, examinations. But anyway, let's have a look at the genitals, and hopefully it will be fairly obvious if this is an anatomically male or female baby. Now, if the genitalia are ambiguous, then this is really a very urgent issue that requires specialist input, as it can be very distressing to the parents and needs to be sorted.
2: Okay, so let's look specifically at the boys. What are we uh, looking for and what are we worrying about?
7: So we're going to have a look at the scrotum and see if we can palpate the testes. One side being high or up in the inguinal canal is pretty common. Usually you can sort of milk them down a bit, but having both testes undescended and unable to be drawn down into the scrotum is abnormal and requires urology referral. We're going to look for scrotal swellings such as a hydrocele, that's fairly common. And we're going to have a look at the penis for size and the position of the urethral meatus. Now, if we find a hypospadius or a micro penis, so a penis size less than two centimeters, we're going to refer to urology. So, now moving
2: on to the labia and the vagina for girls. What are we looking for? Or what might we see that
7: we aren't expecting to see? Sometimes shocks people when there is a vaginal discharge or even vaginal bleeding in little baby girls. These things are normal and again due to the effects of the maternal hormones and they usually disappear over a few weeks. And we should be able to see labia majora and labia minora and we should be able to see an orifice between the labia.
2: I One time when I was a resident and we delivered a baby and a little girl and I went back with my staff to do the newborn exam and we opened the diaper and there was a bit of blood and the dad was horrified because he thought she was starting her period. He's like, they get their periods when they're babies. <laughs> he was, he, was he, he literally looked like he'd been lied to his whole life oh. and his whole world was crumbling in.
4: Was everything a lie?
2: For both boys and girls, we have to look a little bit further back now and back towards the anus. What are we looking for?
7: Yeah, so we want to see that it's patent and to know that meconium has been passed. No passage of meconium within the first 24 hours of life is not normal and that needs referral. But remember that sometimes they pass meconium before birth, and that counts as passage of meconium. So that's that's good.
4: Hips.
2: So while the diaper's off, we're also going to check the hips for stability. And some people find the Barlow Ortolani examination quite confusing. So can you explain how you do it, please, Penny? Because I think having an approach to this is what's really important.
7: Yeah, so it's a little bit tricky to describe with words. It's a bit easier to demonstrate visually, but I'll see how we go. Let's assume that We're at the feet end of the baby and I'm going to be examining the left hip. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stabilize the baby's pelvis with my left hand. And then with my right hand, I'm gonna move the baby's left femur into adduction and 90 degrees of flexion. So basically the femur is sticking straight up from the surface of the cot. The knee is flexed and the lower leg is basically just resting down. Now for me, I'm gonna have my thumb over the baby's knee and I'm gonna have my fourth and fifth fingers over the side of the hip. So the Barlow manoeuvre is to try and dislocate the femur. So I'm going to be pushing downwards posteriorly on the knee using my thumb to see if I can get that sense of dislocation. Now it's not always very obvious if you dislocate the hip. So the next manoeuvre is the Ortolani manoeuvre. And for that one, I'm abducting the femur while I'm pushing the greater trochanter upwards with my fourth and fifth fingers to try and relocate the dislocated hip into the acetabulum. Now, if you have dislocated the hip and then you relocate it, the relocation part is much more obvious and hopefully you'll feel or hear a definite sort of clunk sound. Does that make sense?
2: That's great. Yeah, that's definitely I like the way you're doing it with one hip at a time too. Yes. I think we sort of focus on doing it together, both hips at the same time, which may be what we're doing practically, but in terms of describing it, I think it's really helpful to think of it in one.
7: Yeah, I was gonna say that you really should do it just one hip at a time. If you do both together, then you're gonna have a shifting pelvis and it just may you may miss it. So I really would advise people just to do stabilize the pelvis with one hand and do the maneuver with the other hand and then switch hands to the other hip.
2: Are there any issues if you have
7: smaller hands, bigger hands? Hand size comes into a little bit. I've got tiny hands. So people with bigger hands, I think sometimes would use the kind of webbing between their thumb and their finger to press down on the knee and then use their index and middle fingers over the greater trochanter. So kind of more pointing downwards, whereas I'm sort of more pointing my hand parallel to the cot. But for each person, you're really going to experiment a little bit in what works with you. But the important thing to remember is that if you do have a dislocatable or relocatable hip, then they need an ultrasound and an ortho review within a week. Okay, so a clunky hip, I feel, is usually pretty obvious. But what about the clicky hip? Yeah, you do tend to feel various clicks and pops when doing hip exams in babies, and it's a little bit controversial as to whether this is meaningful or not. But in some cases, it can indicate some subluxation. So I have a pretty low threshold for a six-week screening ultrasound in those babies.
4: Lower limbs.
7: Moving
2: on down. Next, we're going to be checking the legs and the feet. What are we looking for?
7: Yep. So again, posture, movement, symmetry, and deformity. And for the legs and feet, the most common type of deformity is of the feet and ankle, which we call talipes. The classic type is talipes equinoverus commonly known as club foot, and this is where the foot is pointed down and rotated inwards. The next most common type is Talipes Calcaneovalgus, valgus, where the foot is dorsiflexed and externally rotated. And these two variations are usually positional, so you can typically mobilize the ankle and the foot into the usual position. They're kind of just a bit bent out of shape from where they were in utero. I advise parents to mobilize those little ankle joints a few times a day after diaper changes or with feeds or whenever they think of it. And physical therapists can also help with these. You can also get rigid or fixed deformities of the feet, like a rocker bottom foot or a congenital vertical talus. So if you've got a fixed deformity, they need orthopedic review. And again, count the toes.
2: That's right. No surprises. We don't want them going home with extra toes (laughs) that we didn't know. That's (laughs) right. Okay. Now we've done the top to toe, toes, in fact, and now we need to do the front to back because we can't forget that uh, there's a whole side of the baby that we often don't look at.
4: The back. What are we doing next?
7: Yeah, so let's flip the baby over. So I'm going to be supporting them with a hand under their chest. And this gives you a pretty good assessment of tone, actually, because floppy babies will like drape over your hand in like an upside down U shape. And babies with normal tone will sort of like lift their head up a bit and lift their arms and legs. But while we're there, we're going to be checking the spine and it should be palpable along the entire length. And particularly we're going to be looking at the base of the spine for any hair tufts or pits that might be a sign of spina bifida that needs referral for ultrasound. And it's pretty common spot as well to get birthmarks. So the common one at the sacrum or towards the bottom of the back is the blue spot or the slate grey nevus which is a brown, blue, grey, flat patch. It's sometimes mistaken for bruising, so it is important to document in case later it becomes an issue. The other one at the nape of the neck is a stalk bite, which is another type of hemangioma.
4: Looking at the skin.
7: Okay, and just a note about skin in general. Obviously, we're going to also
2: be looking out for rashes throughout the entire examination of the baby from head to toe. The most common rash that we'll see is erythema toxicum, which, despite the name, is actually benign. I really don't know why they had to call it that, but that's what they chose. And this looks like multiple yellow pustules on a sort of red macular base. And then there's the tiny little white bumps on the face, which sometimes is called baby acne. And this is really technically called milia. But anything that looks crusted, vesicular, obviously scary, cellulitic or purulent, that is not normal. And you might need swabbing or follow-up treatment. You're going to need to keep a close eye on that.
4: Neonatal reflexes.
2: So you mentioned tone. Let's talk about some neonatal reflexes because there are a lot of these and they can get a little bit confusing. So what are the ones that you should see in a newborn?
7: Neonatal reflexes. There are a few different of these primitive reflexes, and the reason that they exist is to help newborns survive. And um, if we see them, then that's a sign of a normal neurological system. So the the sort of common ones that we see would be the sucking reflex. So a finger on the palate should stimulate a sucking response. The rooting reflex, so if you lightly brush a finger onto the baby's cheek, that stimulates them to turn their head towards that side and you often see them opening their mouth like they're looking to suck. And that one's pretty cute, actually. I quite like doing that one. The grasp reflex, so if you put a finger in the baby's palm, they should grasp your finger. The stepping reflex is when you hold a baby upright with their feet on a flat surface like the cot. They will appear to be stepping one foot in front of the other. And then there's the morrow or the startle reflex. Now, this one is a little bit mean. So what you're going to do is you're going to sort of hold the um, baby a bit upright at a kind of 45 degree angle with the hand under the baby's back. And then you are going to sort of drop them down rapidly into a more flat position so that they are kind of falling backwards. And you're going to obviously catch them with your hand um, so that they don't actually fall and hit the surface. But that stimulates a extension of the head and legs and their arms come upwards with extended fingers first and then they come down into flexion with a grasped palm and they often cry. So it does feel mean.
2: I find it's a really good idea to warn the parents about what you're about to do. So while you're holding them up in the 45 degree angle position, say, okay, now I'm going to make the baby think it's falling. I'm going to catch them. It's going to be okay, but I'm not Like tormenting your baby, this is actually a reflex I'm looking for. Because otherwise, I'm pretty sure they think that we're just like messing with their baby.
7: Yeah, or like just really clumsy. I'm not just accidentally dropping your baby. Yeah.
4: I know it doesn't look like it, but there is a method to the madness. Whoops.
7: So they're the kind of five sort of of the common reflexes for a routine screening exam. The sucking, the grasp, and the morrow were kind of the three most uh, useful ones. But yeah, if we have absent reflexes or an abnormal tone or we see any seizure activity, which can be pretty subtle, conscious level not quite right, then again, these are going to need a referral. But thankfully, these findings are uncommon. And really,
2: with that, we're done. We've done head to toe and front to back. And uh, that's a great overview of everything we have to
7: do. So what do you do at the end? Yep. So now it's time to get the baby dressed again, hand them back to the parents or the caregivers. going to explain what we found answer any questions, organize any referrals and do the documentation, which is the bit we all love. But it's super important. Yeah,
2: but it's really important because uh, for continuity of care, if you're not going to be the person taking care of that baby as an outpatient, having a good documentation could save their primary care provider a whole lot of headache if they realize that this has already been seen and it's either been investigated or it's been noted as normal.
4: Summary.
7: So do you have any final closing summary points for us? Yeah, so in summary, the newborn examination is a thorough, detailed top to toe and front to back examination that actually doesn't take very long, despite the fact that it takes a long time to explain. The examination itself is pretty quick once you're um, practiced at it. You need to be systematic but also opportunistic in order to get all of the information that you need. It requires adequate exposure at various times but also a warm environment to keep those little bubbies from getting too cold. You're going to document any abnormal findings and organise any necessary referrals or follow-up tests. And finally, it's important to know what the red flag findings are that need urgent intervention.
2: That's great. Thank you so much for that, Penny. I think that's going to give people a lot of um, information and hopefully some confidence so that they feel uh, more empowered to go out there and do those newborn examinations on the ward as well because it's a great way to meet your future patients, to spend time with the families in your practice, And also just to get to basically play with cute babies. It's kind of a nice break in a day. So,
7: well, thank you so much and uh, have a great day. You too. Thanks, Vanessa.
4: Meningioma
0: with Chris Drum. Chris, you're back. It's nice to see you. How have you been?
5: Oh, I have been quite well and living a headache-free life
0: living a headache-free life, which I, I think makes me think that you might have a case for us that involves a headache. Tell me about your recent patient.
5: Oh, yeah. Recent patient, nuanced headaches. The patient really struggled to kind of describe the headache. Just kept saying, you know, pain in my head or my head hurts, and the headache was all over. And I was struggling to get the patient to give me some descriptors.
0: Right. Okay. So this patient has a headache. And if we're talking about it, it was obviously not your run-of-the-mill headache. So what did you end up doing for this patient and why did you do it?
5: Well, right, this patient is somebody who never said they got headaches before, other than a hangover, and this patient was older. And so at this point, because of age and new onset headaches, I did get an MRI of the brain. I gave some medicine for the headache and the headache got better.
0: Interesting, so it's over the age of 50 that we image if there's a new onset headache and MRIs were the best imaging of choice which is what you ordered for your patient. And I'm assuming because their headache went away, that MRI was perfectly normal. Or is there more to the story?
5: Oh, yes, Heidi, of course there's more to the story. The MRI came back and said, there is a meningioma. And the patient said, how bad is it? Am I going to die? And this is the moment I realized I need to do a deeper dive into meningiomas.
0: I'm glad we're talking about it because I think most of us know that meningiomas are very common and that they're actually the most common primary tumor of the brain. But for many of us, I would say our knowledge stops there.
5: Well, you know, our boy Harvey Cushing was the first to coin the term meningioma in 1922. They come from meningothelial cells, which are membranes that cover the brain. And most meningiomas are benign. But as you're going to learn about a meningioma is if you've learned about one meningioma, you've seen one meningioma because they can grow to quite large sizes and cause issues in some patients.
0: Yeah, and the thing with a meningioma like any mass is that it depends where it's growing, right? Because if you have a small tumor that's slowly growing in your abdomen where there's room to grow, that's one thing, but inside your skull, there's not a heck of a lot of room to grow there, so that's a that's a serious concern. Let's jump into epidemiology here.
5: Yeah, so the incidence has been increasing over the past 10 years, and either because there are more meningiobas happening or we're finding more. There are about 37% of all primary
0: CNS tumors. I bet Chris we're finding more of them because the population is aging, so probably that's uh, that's part of the effect.
5: Oh yeah, in children under 18, it's 14 per 100,000. But in the okay. 75 to 85 age group, you have 38 per 100,000.
0: Are there any other risk factors we should keep an eye out for?
5: So the main one that we know is radiation. And there was a time in Israel where they were using radiation treatment to treat ringworm. Yeah, tinea capitis being treated with radiation. Bonkers. And it resulted in a significant increase in the incidence of meningiomas. We also know that survivors of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki had increased risk of meningiomas There is a strong genetic component, especially with neurofibromatosis 2 and MEN syndrome type 1. Using a cell phone has not been shown to cause brain tumors, at least not yet. Thank goodness.
0: (sighs) Now, I've had patients whose presenting symptom that led to the diagnosis of meningioma was a seizure. And I've also had a patient who presented with headaches like yours. But certainly other clinical symptoms can uh, be a sign that there's a meningioma.
5: Well, honestly, most times they're found by accident. I don't know that anyone ever came in with a headache and meningioma was in my differential. It's often the incidentaloma, the radiologic finding that you weren't looking for. But you're correct. Headaches and seizures are the most common first symptoms reported in meningiomas. And as you stated earlier, the symptoms really depend on location of your tumor. Obviously, headaches are a really common presenting symptom like my patient. You can also have nausea and vomiting associated with these headaches. Often they can be worse in the morning, but it's tricky because sometimes it'll make you think of a migraine or it'll sound migranous in certain ways. These patients can have cranial nerve defects, seizures obviously due to the mass effect, and personality changes depending on the location, especially if it's frontal, confusion, and fatigue.
0: I'm curious to explore your comment on location a little bit more. What might you see depending on where this tumor is?
5: So, for instance, a lesion at the skull base is more likely to present with seizures, while anterior meningiomas are more likely to cause vision changes and headaches, and depending on the location, can definitely affect the different cranial nerves.
0: And I would expect that uh, the speed with which the tumor is growing would play a role here too. Oh yeah, but the good thing is they're often slow growing,
5: and often we're going to be able to watch them over time.
0: Well, if you want to get specific about growth, the average growth is about two to four millimeters per year for the smaller ones. But the bigger meningiomas are likely to just go on a growth spurt all on their own. And it's, uh, it, it's interesting how they grow really depends on what grade they are. So Chris, let's take a minute to review the different grades of meningiomas and in the, in the different subtypes. And as I understand it, the grade that's assigned to them really depends on what the pathologist sees when they look at the slide. And there's also further categorization that the World Health Organization came out with. And can you please tell us what those are?
5: I'm going to run through these different categories. And these subtypes were uh, updated in 2016. I don't want you to memorize them all. But I want us family physicians to know that these classifications exist and that meningiomas are really kind of complicated. So grade one are the benign meningiomas. We have... Meningiothelial and fibrous and transitional. Do not forget about samomitus, angiomatous, and microcytic. And grade 1 is not complete until we mention secretory. Lymphoplasmocyte-rich and metaplastic. Yes, metaplastic is grade 1, even though that word sounds really, really bad. About 80% of meningiomas are grade 1. Grade 2, they call the atypicals. These are the atypical meningioma, the clear cell, and the chordoid. Grade 3 are considered malignant. And there are still three left in grade three category. I know I'm going on forever and include papillary, rhabdoid, and anaplastic. Luckily, only 1.7% of meningiomas only end up being grade three.
0: Wow. And I would assume that uh, your prognosis is worse the higher the grade. Is that a fair assumption?
5: Oh, very much so. Very much so. Heidi, tell me about the role of genetics in meningiomas and how can we make them even more complicated?
0: Yeah, I think the story of the 2000s is really the role of genetics in, uh, in oncology management and tumor management, and this is no different. So there are many genetic markers here. So when possible, we're doing biopsies that are being sent for further genetic evaluation. And it's interesting, Chris, the most common abnormality is loss of chromosome 22q, which we also see in people who have uh, neurofibromatosis too, so that, that commonality there. Epigenetic variations will probably be a better predictor long term compared to like these actual grades and subtypes you mentioned. But basically, we're in the infancy here and and the future is exciting.
5: Yeah, there are many different chromosome abnormalities that they're seeing with these meningiomas. And I know that a lot of the tertiary care centers here in America are sending off and reclassifying some of these meningiomas. Because some of them that basically could have both been grade one then are being looked at later with the genetic markers. And they're looking back and saying, wow, now that we're seeing that certain genetic markers make this look more worrisome, we're able to tell whether or not the meningioma after it's resected comes back quicker. And so it definitely sounds like going forward, genetics is going to really help us in deciding how aggressive to be in this treatment.
0: What are the treatment options? So I know I have some people that, you know, we kind of serially monitor things rather than the jumping right to treatment, but how about you walk us through what the, uh, the main options are?
5: Well, initially, the uh, what I like to call the serial MRI or the wait and see or the also called observation. And this is for patients mostly with minimal symptoms or patients too sick for surgery and mostly for those asymptomatic with meningiomas lower than three centimeters. And I feel like whenever we get one of these incidentalomas, If you leave here with a number to remember, it would be three centimeters. So less than three centimeters, asymptomatic. Oftentimes can just watch and re-MRI in the future. Surgery is the main treatment. Let's get this thing out of the brain. Let's get this thing out of the spinal cord, if we can, while minimizing damage to any neurologic functions. Sometimes patients actually get preoperative embolization to try to shrink the meningioma before the surgery. There's actually a criteria called the Simpson grading of resection, and I can't get into any more gradings, but it really is, did we get gross resection versus partial resection versus, you know, the subtotal or versus biopsies?
0: So watchful waiting and surgery are definitely good options. What are some other ones?
5: Radiation. Uh, There's many different types of radiation used, from stereotactic radiosurgery to standard radiation. And for those with grade three tumors or those that are unresectable, and they'll all get radiation. Some grade twos, even after surgery, they will consider radiating as well. Chemotherapy is not really used much. There are certain patients where they're trying different chemotherapeutic agents, but at this time, not currently the answer for these tumors.
0: Well, Chris, before we wrap this up, I need to circle back and find out what happened to your patient. So my
5: patient had a three centimeter frontal meningioma and currently being further evaluated by neurosurgery, with plans to re-image in six months. And they're still not certain that this headache that seemed to go away came from meningioma, so we're really discussing whether or not this meningioma was even a symptomatic one, or just a pure incidentaloma.
0: Okay, so not the worst-case scenario by any stretch. I really hope she continues to do well. Summary All right, Chris, we've reached the end, which means it's time to wrap all of this up.
5: Well, a meningioma is the most common primary brain tumor. It's derived from the meninges, and we should consider imaging patients with new onset seizures, changing headaches or headaches with red flags, and those with neurologic symptoms that need evaluation. These patients, if they have a meningioma, should be really evaluated in a group setting where you have an oncologist and a neurologist and a neurosurgeon, really to determine what is the best course of action for the patient. Location of the tumor can tell us a lot about the symptoms and after the biopsy. Make sure to look up the exact type to see what classification they are. Our job is to help patients better understand these tumors, understand their staging, and really be with them throughout the process.
0: Yeah, certainly it really speaks to our role as ongoing support and us needing to be knowledgeable enough about a condition to answer a patient's questions. So I'm glad we've had this conversation to walk through this. So thank you for sharing this with us. Oh, yeah. We are here with Dr. Penny Wilson, and today's topic is contraception for our transgender and gender diverse patients.
7: Yeah, so look, when we've got a patient in front of us, it doesn't really matter what they look like on the outside. If somebody with a uterus and ovaries is having vaginal sex with somebody with a penis and testes, they could potentially become pregnant. So we are talking about folks who are assigned female at birth, but who are transmasculine, but also non-binary, gender fluid genderqueer, and all other colours of the rainbow.
0: Now, as with any patient, we always start with an assessment of why our patient is there and how we can help them.
7: Yeah, so a thorough sexual history is important, and we want to determine what their goals of treatment are, the type of sex that they're having, including what type of genitals their sexual partner or partners have, so we can determine their risk of pregnancy and infections and that kind of thing. And we want to, of course, make no assumptions and just be curious in our inquiries. So many transmasculine patients will have worsened dysphoria if they have cyclical bleeding and will desire suppression of bleeding. So that's the sort of most common desire that people will have is that if they are transmasculine, they don't want to bleed. But that's not the case with all patients. Some are not as bothered. And some also may desire the option of future fertility and some will not. And I also want to point out that for these patients, they may or may not already be on masculinizing hormone therapy, such as testosterone. And if they are on testosterone therapy already, that typically suppresses periods within six months, but it is not reliable as a form of contraception. And also testosterone has potentially harmful effects on fetuses. So we don't want to just make an assumption that if somebody's on testosterone and not having periods, that We don't need to think about contraception because avoidance of pregnancy in these patients is still important.
0: Now, what are the best options for contraceptions for these patients?
7: So all options are available. Typically, people will prefer to avoid estrogen when they're already taking testosterone as it can interfere with their testosterone therapy and sometimes it can worsen dysphoria. So generally, progestin-only methods are preferred, and particularly those that have high rates of amenorrhea and don't have that kind of breakthrough bleeding. So the typical or the most common preferred options would be the levonorgestrel IUD or a depot injection, which tend to really suppress the periods in most people. You can use other progestin-only methods as well, like the progestin-only mini pill, but the breakthrough bleeding for those may be distressing for some people.
0: What about non-hormonal contraception?
7: Yeah, copper IUD is also a good option.
0: Yep, if they can tolerate it from a bleeding perspective. When might contraception no longer be required?
7: So if folks go ahead and get a gender-affirming surgery, so bottom or lower half surgery that removes their uterus, they will no longer require contraception because they've had surgical sterilization.
0: Right, okay. Now, how about gender-diverse folks who are assigned male at birth?
7: So, it's also important to know that gender-affirming hormone therapy with estrogen and antiandrogens also won't reliably stop sperm production or suppress fertility. So, again, you still need to think about birth control in these folks. The options are the same as for cis men. So, that is condoms or vasectomy. And for some people, they'll also pursue bottom surgery like orchiectomy. So, in that case, they've had
0: the surgical procedure and you don't need to worry anymore. This conversation, Penny, is really just meant to be a very quick overview. And I thank you for joining me for this. But if our listeners are looking for more information, we're going to include that information in the show notes. But before we go, give us the the short snapper. What do we need to know at the bedside?
7: So for gender diverse and transgender people, don't make any assumptions about who they're having sex with and what their plans are for their fertility and contraception just ask and be respectful and keep in mind that pregnancies can still happen
1: okay do it, <laughs> oh,
8: no,
4: that's it. Oh, that's it. kids do the strangest things <laughs>
8: I would like to start off with a case. It's going to be a little bit of a stumper. I really hate to do this on your first time on the show, but I just want to show everybody what you know and what you're capable of. So I'm setting the bar kind of high. Hey everyone, it's Gita Pensa and I'm here with pediatrics expert, Dr. Chris Merritt. I totally see the merit.
9: I am a pediatric emergency doc I take care of kids in the Hasbro Children's Hospital here in Providence, Rhode Island, and I'm in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brown University. And I see kids across the spectrum. So I see a lot of kids who might be seen in the urgent care setting and all the way through to the sicker kids that need to be in the emergency department.
8: Well, it's great to have you here. And let's get to that super tough case. The case. So let's say a hypothetical 11-month-old No significant past medical history, full-term baby, all the immunizations are up to date, et cetera, et cetera, comes into our urgent care with a complaint of cough and a low-grade fever. And this child came down with a runny nose a few days ago with a slight cough. And parents weren't too worried at that time. But now the cough is a little more frequent. And they think that perhaps the child is having a little trouble breathing. It sounds a little tight and a little wheezy. Hasn't been any vomiting or diarrhea, maybe a tactile temp at home, and an older child at home has a cold, but doesn't really seem as sick as this baby. So what else can I tell you? Let's see. All the eligible adults are COVID-19 vaccinated, no clear exposures, the child doesn't go to daycare, and drinking fluids, doesn't want to eat much, less active than usual, but, you know, you know, peeing and pooping and doing all the good stuff. And when you walk in, the baby is being happily occupied by something on the <laughs> parent's phone and is alert. And what else do you want to know?
9: The peds exam for me starts from the doorway, right? So I kind of just want to get a sense of like what this kid looks like. And before I get close enough that they're going to be a little bit <laughs> unnerved by my proximity, I just get a, I get a look from the doorway. And so I kind of want to get a sense of like, does this kid alert and interactive with the family or with myself? Or are they a little bit more depressed in their behavior and and sort of what does their color look like and and those kinds of
8: things? Yeah, that doorway assessment is so critical, whether you're in the urgent care or the emergency department, that initial size up of sick or well, what's happening here before you even start asking questions, which is awesome. So let me tell you, before you walk in the room, you knew that the vitals were temp of 99.4, the heart rate was 130 respirations were, you know, in the 28 to 32 range, and the child is 94% on room air. And when you're watching from the doorway, child is quiet, looking at the phone, perks up a little bit when mom sits up because they see that you're there, and all of a sudden is sizing you up. (laughs) As
9: as they want to do, right.
8: (laughs) And so I'll, I'll tell you, you do your exam, and this baby looks... Tired, but not really in respiratory distress. They look a little dry, maybe a little dry mucous membranes there. They're crying appropriately, though. They don't really want you messing with them. A little bit of tachycardia, maybe a little tachypnea, but you do see notable intercostal retractions, maybe some belly breathing, and the lungs are tight. They're not not great at air entry. There's some fine wheezes, fine little rales throughout your exam. And now the baby is thoroughly angry with you. <laughs>
9: So I've done my job and upset this poor <laughs> child. Yeah, so this, this is a kid that we see in a normal year, we see all winter long, right? This is a baby who's got viral symptoms, maybe a prodrome of you know, upper respiratory symptoms, and now sounds like has signs of some lower respiratory tract involvement. And based on this description, you know, it sounds like this is a baby with bronchiolitis.
8: Yes. And you know what? It's funny that you say that in a normal year, this is something you see all the time because we didn't see it in um, right? the appropriate winter season of 21. It went away.
9: It was amazing to me that we just missed an entire season of bronchiolitis. And those of us who sort of rely on those seasons to tell us what time of year it is, right? Like if it's if there's RSV in the air, then it's probably winter. If there's flu, maybe it's a little later in the winter. And if I start seeing Coxsackie virus, wow, it's the first sign of summer.
8: <laughs> well, I set you up by saying, you know, sort of tongue in cheek that like, this is something you're not going to recognize. But it turns out that some of our earlier residents getting into bronchiolitis season have not seen a ton of bronchiolitis just because of, of their training. So it's probably good that we're talking about this.
9: Yeah, you're absolutely right.
8: So let's hone in a little bit on the diagnosis and management of bronchiolitis and where it overlaps with asthma and what other things that maybe we should have on our differential. So I guess let's start with that. Yeah. What other diagnoses should we initially think about when we see a child presenting like this? And what might push you more in a different direction instead of just saying like, oh gosh, bronchiolitis again, I've seen a million of these.
9: Yeah. And it's, you know, bronchiolitis is really a clinical diagnosis. And so it is the setting, the age, the history is really key and the, and the clinical findings. And so in the appropriate age group, so an infant or maybe a young toddler, you know, up to maybe a couple of years old who has this prodrome of, you know, runny nose, cough, maybe fever, and now has lower respiratory findings. This fits with bronchiolitis. And it's one of those things, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately or unfortunately, it's one of those things that you sort of know it when you see it. And there's very little else in the way of diagnostics or testing that is all that useful in making the diagnosis of bronchiolitis. Now that said, you have to obviously be a little bit aware of some of the mimics and some of the things that might get you into trouble. Thankfully, those are far more rare, but if it doesn't quite fit the pattern, it should make you at least stop and think. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to do a whole lot of other testing if you can reassure yourself that no, this probably is bronchiolitis. But there are a few things that you should be thinking about, and most of those have to do with either unrecognized heart disease or some sort of bacterial superinfection. Typically, the, the thing we think most about is pneumonia. And then in the older toddler, there's a little bit more crossover with reactive airways or asthma.
8: Okay. All right. That's really helpful. Let's get back to this child who we know is really healthy. The vital signs are reassuring, pretty well-looking kid. Sats are great. We look at them and think, this is probably bronchiolitis and we can reassure ourselves. So before we get too much further into the weeds though, maybe we should just make sure that we're all on the same page. What is bronchiolitis? Who gets it? And when do we most often see it in a normal year?
9: Yeah, in a typical year, at least here in the Northeast and most of North America, it's something that we'll see in the mid to late winter, typically starting maybe around at its earliest, around November, and then running in through the late spring in like April and May. The most common cause for bronchiolitis is respiratory syncytial virus, the dreaded RSV, but there are any number of other respiratory viruses that can cause bronchiolitis as a clinical syndrome in infants. So, the most common ages are under a year. We see it up into the early toddler years as well, and that's where it gets a little hazy with the crossover with reactive airways disease or early asthma.
8: So if we see a four-year-old presenting sort of like this with a cold and wheezing and a little bit of retractions on exam, we probably shouldn't be diagnosing it as bronchiolitis.
9: Yeah, that's a little bit out of the typical window. It's funny, there's this like infancy period where. A baby with wheezing, you know, and sort of viral symptoms is probably bronchiolitis, right? And if you're four or five years old and you have viral symptoms and then you have wheezing, you're probably more in the kind of asthma period. There's all these different terms that people kind of invent to describe the preschooler or older toddler who has wheezing in the setting of a viral illness. People talk about reactive airways disease. People talk about wheezing-associated respiratory illness. There's all these kind of invented terms that are very nonspecific. To describe these kids who maybe wheeze once or twice with a cold in their sort of toddler preschool years and don't go on to develop asthma, it's awfully hard to make the asthma diagnosis until it becomes more of a chronic problem.
8: What factors in the history should make us sit up and take notice where bronchiolitis, if we do think it's bronchiolitis, this could have a bad outcome with their bronchiolitis?
9: There are a few factors that we should consider that might put kids at risk for having more severe disease who might have the potential anyway to require more intensive therapy. One. The biggest one is any history of prematurity. They may have some degree of underlying chronic lung disease. Whether or not it's recognized until they get sick is another story, but those kids are definitely at higher risk. Two. The younger infants, so babies under a couple of months of age, two to three months of age, I would say, are certainly at higher risk for developing more severe disease. Three, and then any baby who has any congenital heart disease, any cardiopulmonary disease, those babies are at higher risk. And so if you see babies like that, even if they look reasonably well, those are kids who at least you know might have the potential to get sicker over the course of the next couple of days. And especially in those young babies, like under a couple of months of age, or babies with congenital heart disease, those kids can get sick kind of in a hurry. I tend to watch them for a little bit longer, and my threshold for even admitting them to the hospital is a little bit lower than it would be, say, for our baby who's 11 months old and robust and and is a healthy, thriving child.
8: I would say in those scenarios, if I were seeing those babies in the urgent care, now some urgent carers don't see babies that young, right? but if I'm seeing a child that young or I'm seeing a child that has a known significant medical history, that would completely lower my threshold for transferring that baby to the emergency department for evaluation, even if their vitals looked pretty good.
9: Absolutely, yeah. Those kids just have the potential to turn the corner a little more quickly. In contrast to the older kids who bronchiolitis follows this fairly predictable course in the sense that it tends to start off relatively mild with sort of cough and cold symptoms. And the peak of the severity of its illness tends to be about the fourth or fifth day of illness and so if you're seeing a kid you know if you're seeing an older infant a 10 or 11 month old who is on day two or three of illness you might expect that their illness might get more severe but it's going to sort of happen relatively gradually in contrast to those younger babies where you know it can happen over the course of a few hours the older infants outside that two to three month age group it tends to be more of a gradual decline if it's going to happen at all.
8: Okay, so speaking of transferring these babies to the emergency department, you talked about your doorway assessment, and we talked about the initial exam in this kid. What factors in a pediatric patient presenting with really any respiratory complaint like this would make you say right from the outset, this is a kid who needs ED-level care, I am calling 911, I am going to transfer this child right away?
9: Yeah, absolutely. There are a handful of things that I look for. A kid in respiratory distress who isn't bothered by your exam, kind of goes along with your exam without fighting at all, uh, at all, or doesn't at least interact with your exam, so the kind of like listless, more lethargic looking baby, that kid probably needs a little bit more care. A baby with more profound hypoxia, so if their oxygen saturation is sort of in the high 80s or lower, those are kids that I think probably might benefit from a, a, you know, an ED level of care. And then the last part is really a little bit more subjective. It's really it has to do with your assessment of the baby's work of breathing. How much accessory muscle use is too much? Gosh, that's a hard question to answer. But, you know, the sort of degree of respiratory distress just on the, just on the basis of assessing the baby's work of breathing is a subjective decision. But, that, you know, there's a line somewhere in there where too much work of breathing is too much work of breathing.
8: Yeah, especially like you're seeing that baby just sort of lying there. That baby's going to try to feed or move, (laughs) um, it's not going well. So yeah, I always keep in mind like, this is a baby who's one supposed to be active and is really not, and is having this much trouble breathing, just lying here, I would err on the side of caution with these kids.
9: Yeah, for sure. And you know, the conversation I have with families, even one of them sending them home, is I sort of, there are about three things that keep a baby in the hospital with bronchiolitis. And they're essentially the, mostly what I've talked about, right? So one, hypoxia, you know, if a baby needs supplemental oxygen, and they're probably staying in the hospital because it's tough to do that at home, although there are places where that can happen. Two, dehydration. You know, Some babies, especially the younger ones, just have trouble feeding. A baby is an obligate nose breather, and your nose is full of snot. And so you put a bottle or a breast in that baby's mouth, and they can't breathe and they can't eat, they have the risk for dehydration. So if they're not making wet diapers or they seem particularly dry, that's a baby who might stay in the hospital for that reason. Three, and then the work of breathing, like I mentioned, and that's a subjective decision, and it's based on you know a number of factors, including age. You know, an older baby might have the fortitude to sort of work a little harder for a little bit longer, whereas a younger infant might be at higher risk with the same amount of work of breathing.
8: Well, fortunately, we don't have that kid. We have this kid who yeah. is giving you the side eye and is appropriately angry and then wants to watch whatever's on the phone again and is breathing well enough that you feel like you could probably. Manage him where you are. So let's talk about now whatever testing and treatment there is to be done for uncomplicated bronchiolitis. There are the most recent American Academy of Pediatrics AAP guidelines on bronchiolitis. And then there is the practical matter of actually dealing with this child in front of us and a parent who wants to know what's wrong and our mutual desire to do something to make this baby better. So first let's just run through the current AAP guidelines on let's talk about testing. You mentioned you alluded to the fact earlier that testing's not going to help us a whole lot. But what do we think about nasal swabs to test for RSV or other viruses in a pretty healthy baby?
9: Testing. Yeah. So it's interesting. The AAP guidelines really are a whole list of things not to do. <laughs> and it's really hard to not do things when really you want to help people right you want to help this baby feel better you want to help this family feel good about bringing this baby home the role for viral testing is really limited i think this may you know this has changed a little bit in the covid era when you may be a little more prone to be testing for covid in our i know in our place our covid test includes most rapid of our covid tests includes flu and rsv so it, that has confounded the sort of Adherence to these guidelines a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. because, you know, I think in, for many of us, if my baby had COVID, I might want to know. That said, specifically for bronchiolitis, the recommendations really are that viral testing is not particularly helpful. You know, it may give a name to the virus that your baby has, but it doesn't really impact the treatment that we recommend or the care that we provide in the urgent care. And so in that setting, it's really an expense without much value.
8: Okay, I get that. What about? Chest x-rays, especially in the febrile baby. You wonder if they're hiding a pneumonia. So many of us sort of fall back on the like, how am I gonna know if it's a focal pneumonia if I don't do an x-ray?
9: Yeah, again. And in the guidelines, the history and the physical exam are really the gold standard for diagnosis. And routine chest x-rays are not recommended. And part of that is because they're a little bit fraught with peril, right? So these babies have like snot in their lungs for lack of a better description. And I always say that to families too. I'm like, imagine your nose gets when you get a cold it's swollen and red and runny and it's hard to breathe through and then these younger kids and infants that same process happens in the small airways in the lungs and they're essentially swollen and red and runny and hard to breathe through now from the perspective of a chest x-ray what that means is there's often an element of atelectasis as that sort of mucus gets shifted around there might be small airway collapse and that may show up on the x-ray as a small opacity And in the setting of a febrile infant, it's really hard to say based on an x-ray whether that's pneumonia or whether that's atelectasis. But we do know that if you took the same baby and took the same x-ray a day later, that little blotch might is likely to be gone and maybe have appeared in another part of the lung. And so we suspect that most of the things that get treated as pneumonia in the setting of clinical bronchiolitis are probably not bacterial pneumonia. And so it leads to a lot of overdiagnosis and overtreatment.
8: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, we want to be judicious with radiation in these young children, too. And a lot of times, getting that x-ray is going to push us into unnecessary antibiotic treatment. And obviously, that has consequences, too. I wonder when it is that you do pull the lever and say, "Mm, this kid needs an x-ray.
9: Yeah. And, you know, I I would be lying if I said I never get an x-ray in a kid with bronchiolitis. (laughs) Anyone who says never (laughs) is probably wrong. But so I think that the thing that I would think about is what's the time course and what has sort of the clinical progression been? So if this baby's following the typical course, you know, they had runny nose and cough and it's worsened over the course of three or four days and now they're working to breathe and they have some fever, that to me sounds like bronchiolitis, assuming their clinical exam, you know, has that sort of coarse dishwasher sound in their lungs as well. A baby who maybe had that time course started to get better and then got worse again, especially if there's focal findings on the lung exam, that might be a baby who gets an x-ray because they don't follow exactly a typical clinical course. It's a lot about sort of patterns and the babies who fall outside the patterns maybe need a little bit more investigation.
8: Especially if they really are hypoxic or they have a lot of work of breathing. Those are children that you might be transferring yeah. to the ED and letting them decide about the x-ray yeah. regardless, but it's something important to think about. Treatment. Okay. So let's talk about what treatment we're going to offer in this particular case of going back to our baby, uncomplicated bronchiolitis. So we're going to avoid the swabs unless we're worried about COVID. That's a separate discussion, but we're going to avoid the swabs. We're going to avoid the chest x-ray in this child who really doesn't need it. Where are we with pharmacologic treatment? You know, if we're starting with oxygen, I would say if, you, if this child is hypoxic, you're already arranging for transfer to the emergency department for more evaluation there. And I think we're all on board with the fact that these children have a viral illness and do not need empiric antibiotics. What about the albuterol? Because <laughs> having practiced for you know 25 years altogether, I would say I used to routinely treat these babies with albuterol or epi and they got better sometimes. So it's very hard to resist this. So tell us what the guidelines are and let's talk a little bit about why sometimes I want to flout them.
9: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The guidelines again are recommend that routine use of albuterol or other beta agonists or adrenergic agonists is not recommended. And also what you said is true. (laughs) So there are kids in whom a trial of albuterol, you know, is, is undertaken. I think there are a few things that I consider before I start thinking about albuterol. So this is the typical progression that I've seen. So a baby comes in. They are full of snot, they are febrile, and they're wheezing. And we suction their nose to clear their upper airways. We give them Tylenol or ibuprofen for their fever, and we give them albuterol, and they look better. And we say, aha, the albuterol worked, right? And so it's really easy to be like, oh, we did this thing in amongst several other things, and then to ascribe any improvement or benefit to the one thing that we want to be able to tell the family that they can use. And I think in my own practice, and I th- and certainly spawned borne out in these guidelines, it's really important to sort of be a little bit more thoughtful about which of the things might be helpful. So the younger the infant, the less likely albuterol is to have any benefit. Under a year, I would say it's really unlikely that albuterol is going to have sustained benefit for a baby with clinically diagnosed viral bronchiolitis. It's not universal, but it's pretty uncommon under a year, and especially the younger you get. These kids really have a mucus clearance problem. It's not a bronchospasm problem. And so you may shift around some mucus in a different way if you give them albuterol, but it's really not gonna be a sustained effect. The older the kids get, and especially kids who have risk factors for asthma, so kids who are atopic, right, they have eczema all over them, they have some kind of food allergy, they have a family history of asthma, like in a first-degree relative, a parent or sibling. Those kids may be a little bit more prone to having bronchospastic disease, and especially as they get a little older. So like if they're you know 18 months or two years old and they have a viral prodrome, but they have that sort of polyphonic musical wheezing that you see in asthma, those kids maybe are a kid who might benefit from a trial of albuterol. But I would urge folks to do it a little bit sequentially. So if they're febrile, treat their fever and see if their fever gets better. If they're congested and having upper airways obstruction, do some nasal suctioning and see if that helps their work of breathing and wheeze get better. And if that still doesn't help, then a trial of albuterol. And look and listen before and after. And I think that your eyes are almost as good as your ears in terms of assessing the severity of this illness. Look for work of breathing as well as listening for wheezing because the wheeze that comes with viral bronchiolitis sometimes sounds just like the wheeze that comes with asthma. But the work of breathing is really the sort of major component.
8: Okay. And we know that steroids really aren't indicated in run-of-the-mill bronchiolitis, but maybe you would consider it in that kid with atopy who improved with albuterol. Would you send that kid home maybe with steroids?
9: That might be a kid I would consider it in. Certainly not the infants, the young, you know, the under a year crowd. The steroids really aren't of benefit. You know, the kid who has had multiple episodes of wheezing in their lifetime, the older toddler, who's the setup for asthma, that might be a kid I would give a dose of dexamethasone or a course of Pritinus All
8: right. So coming back to wrap it up with our kid, (laughs) our healthy 11-month-old with uncomplicated bronchiolitis and no red flags. So much of this now is managing parental expectations and educating them about what to expect. What? Do you tell and teach these caregivers prior to discharge about caring for this child at home and whether to return to the urgent care or even the emergency department if they
9: look worse? A lot of it is exactly as you said, it's managing expectations. And a lot of my approach is really just commiseration, right? Like, gosh, I feel I feel for you. This is really hard having a sick baby. And it's super frustrating for everyone involved, right? It's frustrating for the baby. (laughs) They just want to sleep and eat. It's frustrating for the parents because they just want their baby to sleep and eat so they can sleep. And it's frustrating for us as providers, right? We want to do something to help. And the reality is, is that there's not a ton that's going to help. There are some things though that we can do. And I counsel and coach parents on this. Babies, like I said, if they're obligate nose breathers and they can't breathe through their nose very well, they're not going to feed well. They're not going to sleep well. So nasal suctioning is a big thing. And there are those sort of blue bulb suction devices that you get sent home from the hospital with your brand new newborn are really not all that That effective. No, They sort of work a little bit, but really not that well, especially in older kids. There are some other nasal aspirator devices that you can buy over the counter. Some of them are even battery powered to do suction, but the most effective ones I've seen actually use the parent's mouth as the suction apparatus. So basically there's a tube with a filter in between You put one end of the tube in the kid's nose and you suck at the other end. It takes a little bit of getting over that (laughs) sort of initial like discomfort with just the idea of that, but I promise no snot goes in your mouth. And those actually work really well. So before a feed or at bedtime, those can be helpful. You know, fever makes everything look worse. And so while fever by itself is not something that should alarm a parent in the setting of bronchiolitis, fever makes your breathing faster and shallower and just makes everything look generally worse. And so, you know, if you can help kids be comfortable with the use of antipyretics, that also makes them look and feel better and breathe more effectively. So I think that's useful. And then the hydration thing is key. And I think babies who are sick like this often will have smaller feeds, but maybe need them more frequently. And that's exhausting as a parent. But that's, I think, one of the most important things.
8: Fantastic. And obviously we warn them about increasing lethargy or if they're not peeing or they really look like they're having more trouble, that that's a kid that really needs to come back.
9: Yeah. And the other frustrating bit about bronchiolitis, right, is that it's not a linear disease. So it gets better and worse by the minute, right? So like one minute, the baby will look really crummy and working hard to breathe. And then they shift some mucus in their lungs and they look more comfortable for a while. So it's really about the overall trajectory of their illness. And I have that conversation with parents as well. If the baby's looking reasonably well in front of me, but this worried parent or family has said, yeah, but they looked really bad before, I say, well, if they look like this some of the time, or especially if they look like this most of the time, that's a good thing. Whereas if they look crummier and crummier over time, then that might be a reason that they need to get seen again.
8: Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about this, Chris. I always learn something when I talk to you.
9: No, thanks, kid. It's been fun.
8: Rural Medicine
2: Talks! Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and I'm back with another Rural Medicine case. So this was the case of a little 18-month-old girl who'd been brought into our remote emergency room for what her grandparents described as a severe nosebleed. They weren't sure why it had started, there was no recent trauma, and the patient was not noted to have been a nose picker. The nosebleed had lasted about 15 minutes, didn't seem to be provoked by anything particular, but it had actually stopped by the time she was seen in triage. The grandparents were caring for the little girl as the patient's mom was out of town for a medical appointment in the south, and the grandparents had said the nosebleed was so intense that even though it had now stopped, they still wanted to stay for an MD assessment. Now, I was in the emergency room at this time, but it was my colleague Dr. Sarah Lalonde who picked up the chart and went to see the patient. She got the history of the nosebleed as already described, and she also asked a few other questions and picked up a few details from the little one's chart. The little girl was generally healthy, apart from a mild iron deficiency anemia that was noted at nine months of age. She'd taken some iron supplementation for a few months, and then the follow-up labs at around 12 months of age had been totally normal. She was up to date on her vaccinations, and aside from catching COVID about three weeks prior, she'd had no medical issues of note in her 18 months. Now, the little girl was very, very scared of healthcare workers, and it was really hard to examine her, but with some time and patience, my colleague did a very thorough exam. Her heart rate was around 180, but she was screaming at the top of her lungs. Her oxygen was 100%, and she was afebrile. But it was really impossible to gauge her respirate as she was hollering so much. But she was vigorous and mad, you know, which can be good signs, and she didn't have any signs of active bleeding from the nose. Now, I think many of us would have very easily said, kid looks well, bleeding stopped, child's next to impossible to examine, to send them home. But not this doctor. She took the time to do a thorough exam, and she was actually kind of alarmed by what
4: she found. So stop for a second and do that mental thing. What would you do in this kid? What exam would make you feel better or worse? What things are you looking for? So just do that mental thing right now. Here we go. And we will continue. She saw a big
2: bruise on the underside of the child's chin and significant bruising behind both of her ears. There were some little scabbed over areas behind the ears and along the hairline, as well as a few on the face, and the grandparents said, oh, those are just mosquito bites, she's really been scratching them a lot, and they didn't seem concerned at all. But Dr. Lalonde thought that this didn't quite fit, so she kept looking. She checked the chest and the abdomen and didn't find anything unusual, but a check of the arms and the legs revealed multiple bruises in different stages of healing. The little girl didn't seem to have any pain in any of the areas of bruising, and there were no visible deformities, but the bruises were certainly prominent, particularly on the anterior shins. So Dr. Lalonde came back to the nursing station and said, I'm worried about this kid, she either has something weird going on with her blood, or she's being abused. She ordered a bunch of labs and had me come in and help her complete parts of the exam. As i said before, the little girl was so scared of healthcare workers that she was really hard to examine, so I was really there to try and distract the patient, whilst Dr. Lalonde finished off the exam. She got a pretty good look at the abdomen and didn't feel or notice anything unusual, When she checked the diaper region. Nothing too remarkable there except for a few tiny pinpoint lesions, which I fear many of us, myself included, would probably have overlooked, but she looked really carefully and she noted that these were non-blanching. But overall, the little girl looked really well. She was very feisty, very strong, and despite being scared of the healthcare workers, she was very easily consolable by her grandparents who were with her and who were being very attentive. It didn't raise too many red flags in that regard for non-accidental trauma. So I went off about my business, and Dr. Lalonde kept seeing other people while we waited for the labs. Then the phone rang, and it was a lab calling the nursing station to let us know some critical results. This little girl had a hemoglobin of 66, which in the U.S. units is 6.6, and platelets of, wait for it, zero. Zero. It had been about 30 minutes since the labs had been drawn and the little girl was literally running around the emergency department while she and her family waited for results. Dr. Lalonde gathered the grandparents and the little girl back in the exam room and she explained the findings. She explained that the little mom was going to need to be sent by medevac down to Montreal for further treatment and testing and that the family needed to stay here and to keep the kid quiet and calm until it was all arranged. At this point, it was around midnight and Dr. Lalonde's shift was finished, so the case was signed over to me for the night. So, the first thing I did was to sit down, try and gather my thoughts, and come up with a plan. But before I could do that, I caught sight of this little patient being raced around the department in a small umbrella stroller. Now, for those of you who haven't had kids, those aren't the super sturdy, massive strollers that look heftier than some small, lightweight aircraft. These are the little fold up strollers that have a sort of a bit of material as a seat, and they have a folding mechanism that is designed to pinch your fingers every single time. You see, what had happened was that a few other family members had come in to help with the patient. And they were trying to distract her. Unfortunately, the unrestrained stroller racing and the oh-so-much-fun tossing of the patient from one grandpa to the other wasn't really a part of the management for someone with zero platelets. So the first thing I had to actually do was go in there and scare them half to death. Well, I didn't actually mean to do that exactly, but that's how it ended up. You see, I popped in and explained again what having zero platelets means and how we have to keep this little girl as calm as possible. I explained that bleeding from a cut on her arm or leg, if she fell, could be very bad, but at least we would be able to apply pressure. But if she fell and bumped her head, with all of the stroller racing and tossing about, she could bleed into her brain, and that could be fatal. Now, the four grandparents were in there, staring at me wide-eyed, and then the grandmas both started to sob. I felt awful for having been so blunt, but I didn't know how else to express my level of concern. I showed how bruised the patient was along her hairline and behind her ears, and explained that that was just from scratching mosquito bites that had bitten her there and they seemed to understand that what I meant once they had had that visual. So I returned to the nursing station and tried to put together my differential. At the top were malignancy and ITP. Her white count was normal, which was reassuring but not definitive. But she had an iron deficiency anemia again. Was this from chronic blood loss due to dwindling platelets, or was it all much more acute? Now, aside from the nosebleed, there was nothing else on history that really suggested occult blood loss and no noted red flags for malignancy. Because the patient had only just started staying with the grandparents the day before when the mom left town for her appointment, they didn't know if she'd had any viral illnesses in the last couple of weeks, except for the history of COVID about three weeks before. So I was still certainly hoping that this was ITP. Now, we do have a blood bank there with around a dozen units of packed red cells, and we have FFP, but no platelets. And I knew that this child had to get to a pediatric center, so I woke up the very kind pediatric hematologist on call. Now, after a few minutes of listening to the case, She accepted the patient for transfer and then started telling me how to transfuse the platelets. I felt so bad for her when I had to explain that we didn't actually have platelets. Then she started saying, oh dear, oh dear, sort of under her breath. And you could tell she was really trying to think. And then there was just silence on the other end of the phone.
4: Again, do that uh, thing that you should do when you listen to these is what would you do under that circumstance? So you get got a kid, no platelets, they're not bleeding to death, but they've got no platelets and they've had some mucocutaneous bleeding. What could you give that potentially could reduce the chance of them bleeding? The differential diagnosis here is obviously this could be an autoimmune problem. It could be an underlying cancer. I don't know. There could be drug-induced, some sort of post-viral myelosuppression. There's a whole bunch of things that it could be. But what could you use? what you talk about?
2: So then I decided to chime in with a cheery tone and say, oh, but uh, we do have IVIG. That brightened her up a little, and she gave me the dose to use and told me to follow our local administration protocol. That certainly seemed reasonable enough, as I know we've given IVIG before and I didn't think too much more about it. The next question was whether or not I should transfuse the little girl with packed red blood cells. Given that her hemoglobin was 66 or 6.6, I had ordered two units right off the bat before even calling hematology. But our savvy lab tech reminded me that we don't have irradiated blood, and that the specialist might want to do something different, or at very least order certain labs before we started a transfusion, in a kid of this age. Thank goodness for team members doing their job so well, even in the middle of the night, because I would have missed that. The hematologist would have preferred to wait until the child was in the city where they could receive irradiated blood, but given that the plane was going to take about 8-10 to hours before it got to us and then back down to Montreal, we decided between us that it would be best to proceed with a transfusion of one unit after having drawn a myriad of viral serologies and blood cultures. Then we went to prepare the IVIG, and that's when we quickly realized that we don't actually have a local protocol for IVIG administration in a pediatric patient under the age of two. So then I started searching the literature in an attempt to find some standardized protocols. Unfortunately, every single reference I looked up provided a different dose parameter, and the nurses were rightly uncomfortable with this degree of uncertainty. But this was when being in a small hospital paid off. The two nurses on shift remembered a young patient we had who was now about five, but who for many years had required IVIG infusions. We'd always followed the Montreal Children's Hospital Protocol, which was faxed to us every few months and updated based on his weight, and which we always kept in his chart. So one nurse went to the archives department, found his chart, and within a few minutes we had access to that age-appropriate protocol. After that, things actually went pretty smoothly, aside from the plane being further delayed. At one point, we had to decide whether we might delay her transfer and piggyback a septic patient onto the plane with her, but the flight nurse did not feel comfortable with this plan, so ultimately our decision was made for us. She went on the first plane that we could get, and she had a successful trip to Montreal. After a myriad of tests, a transfusion of platelets, and a short admission, she was diagnosed with ITP and discharged to the day hospital with a platelet count of 56. However, two days later, a repeat CBC... She had platelets of 30, so she was given another dose of IVIG before being sent back up north. The plan is for her to have close follow-up in the north, with weekly CBCs and IVIG as needed, and of course, follow-up from peds and hematology. Summary This case brought up a few good points. If you have to give non-irradiated blood to a kid, then try to draw baseline viral cultures before the transfusion. And you also might want to check with hematology before transfusing blood assuming they aren't exsanguinating, for someone who could potentially need reputed transfusions in the future, because of course there's a risk of developing antibodies, which could complicate future therapies. But what really gave me pause for thought, or more accurately, what really gives me the heebie-jeebies when I think about it a lot, is how easily this could have been missed. My colleague Dr. Lalonde did a fantastic job picking up those few tiny petechiae and being so diligent as to look behind your ears when she saw the extreme bruising that seemed to have developed from just rubbing those mosquito bites that she had. Luckily, those bruises weren't related to her basilar skull fracture, and it really was just from rubbing mosquito bites. But Dr. Lalonde saved this little girl's life, and this story reminded me that sometimes we need to just slow down and think and really look at the
4: patient, otherwise we could miss the only clue that we're going to get. So again, this is a great case when you don't, have, you don't even have platelets, and you've got a kid who's got a plate count of zero. They're not bleeding right now, but they could at any moment, right? So the differential diagnosis, as we talked about, is fairly broad and you don't really know what's going to work. So you use IVIG, but what if it's cancer? Was it going to help for that? So I would just sort of think about all of the things you could do and then run it by your consultant. I don't think there's anything else you can do. So you can think about IVIG, you can think about steroids, you can think about TXA, you can think about DDAVP. I don't know how that's going to work when there's no platelets. I think it's a really good point before you want to jump on treating the anemia that's associated with this. Again, you want to talk to your consultant and get the rainbow of uh, bloods at least, and then really question whether you need to give blood right now if they're not bleeding, because that might complicate therapies and diagnosis later on. So this is definitely one of those ones that do a good exam, key, and then when you have a differential diagnosis that's wide and a series of therapies that are very specific to certain diseases, you're kind of in a data-free environment. Ah, rural medicine. It's scary out there. Oh, yeah. That's right. Chicka, 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 chicka.
5: Primary care medical medical, 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 abstracts.
2: With Ken and Steve.
6: Happy New Year's, everyone. This is the... CMA, January 2023. It's hard to believe it's 2023. It was a big deal when we did the Y2K, and now we're 23 years past... How did we blow past 23 years? Yeah, I remember that. 1999. I was partying like it's 1999. Oh man, great job on this Austin Powers slash Matrix
1: slash Eyes Wide Shut Theme new year's eve party it makes me just want to get up and do the mambo number five absolutely i hope everyone is having a good new year so far and hopefully you get a little bubbly to celebrate the new
6: year oh well who wouldn't want to listen to this to celebrate the new year absolutely <laughs> so we've got 10 uh, great papers well yeah, maybe not great papers but great critical appraisals of the papers which we can pull out some ooey-gooey EBM nuggets and methodology and how you'll apply it clinically. So I'm excited again. It's refreshed. I'm ready to go. It's a new year. Yep, let's do this. Abstract number one. Paper one. Association of leisure time, physical activity, types, and risk of all cause, cardiovascular and cancer mortality among older adults. And this was in JAMA Open 2022. I thought this would be an Excellent paper to start the year because people often make New Year's resolutions to be more physically active. Now, Steve, I know you're not a New Year's resolution guy.
1: Yeah, I'm not that into New Year's resolutions, but spoiler alert, Ken, when (laughs) I read this article, I wondered if maybe I should
6: be playing more pickleball. (laughs) I got nothing to add now. You just stole my thunder. Bottom line. Okay. Abstract number two. No. All right, well, the objective of this study was to see if there was an association between physical activity and mortality risk. So it was a cohort of participants from that NIH, that National Institute of Health, AARP, Diet and Health Study, who completed a questionnaire way back in the early 2000s. Now, the exposure was how many metabolic equivalent tasks or METs per week from various activities. So like you said, they looked at racket sports, but they also looked at running, cycling, swimming, walking, golf, those types of things. And they wanted to see what was the all cause, cardiovascular cause and cancer mortality. And so they had over 270,000 participants, more than 50% were male. And the mean age at baseline, so back in 2004, was 70 years of age. Now, project that forward, the mean follow-up period was 12 years, so in 12 years, a lot of people died, 43%. And so, in comparison to those who did not participate in activities, to those who did some moderate activity a week, and they defined that as 7.5 to 15 mets hours per week, there was an association with a reduction in all-cause mortality. But like you spoiled... Racket sports had the highest risk reduction, and cycling had the lowest, with all being statistically significant. Now, there was a decrease in cancer mortality, but that was only statistically significant for running and aerobic exercise and cycling. There was a decrease in cardiovascular mortality, but it was only statistically significant in that racket sports, but golf and walking... I don't know how many people are walking while they're playing golf. Maybe they're taking a golf cart. Maybe they're walking. I don't know if they got that granularity. And there was this curvilinear dose response association. So we have a study that supports the position that, hey, exercise is good for you. It's associated with a decrease in cancer mortality, cardiovascular mortality, and all-cause mortality. But the biggest limitation in this study is it's an observational study. Now, they did do a good job of controlling and adjusting for known confounders, but you can't adjust for things that you didn't measure. There might be some reasonable explanations why, if you're healthy enough to play racket sports and run around in a small box and hit a ball and have eye-hand coordination and your wrists are good and your vision is good, you might be generally overall more healthy. But if you can only sit on a stationary bike and pedal while watching Netflix, you might not be as healthy. There could also be some recall bias because it was self-reported physical activity. And I think if they replicated this study now, there could be a good case for wearing a smartwatch to measure all of these physical activities instead of having recall bias. So that would minimize some of that bias in the future. And finally, you know, who were these people? They were older white males and they were high socioeconomic status. So it may lack some external validity to some other important groups besides older white males.
1: Yeah. How do you think this like research meeting went when they all sat around the table and they're like, we need to do a study that shows whether or not exercise is good for you. That's just something that has not been seen yet in the literature.
6: (laughs) I think this gets back to my Doug Altman quote about we need less research, but we need better research, right? So yeah. Like, really? Do we really need this kind of information? Because it doesn't give us the answer, right? And could we have used the time and resources better? So I agree with you.
1: Yeah, what we really need, and we've done some of these, is studies about how do you actually randomize people to change their lifestyle in some way, to improve the amount of exercise that they're doing.
6: Yeah, I've got another example of where maybe we could have tweaked the methodology to get a much better or much more robust answer later in this month's episode. So can I ask you another question about
1: racket sports? Because my son and I love to play ping pong. Do you think that would count as a racket sport?
6: Ooh, I'd have to go back and see if that, you know, like, do they actually have to have netting, you know, within the, in the racket itself? Or could it be a solid object like a ping pong paddle? Because is that more a paddle? Now, pickleball, that's a solid paddle as well, isn't it? With some maybe little holes in it, but it's not, you know, cat gut stretched across it. And I know I'm dating myself here. It's not cat gut, obviously.
1: <laughs> I would think pickleball would, is, it's less running than tennis, but it's still some running. But ping pong is largely a stationary sport. So <laughs> unless you're like at the
6: higher levels of ping pong. Bottom line. Moderate exercise is good for you people.
5: Paper 2.
1: Abstract number 2 is entitled Drug-Induced Orthostatic Hypotension from PLOS Med 2021, November. We prescribe so many medications in our family medicine offices that can cause orthostatic hypotension, and we worry about this because it can lead to falls and increased mortality in our patients. And so you might wonder, like, which drugs are the worst for causing orthostatic hypotension? And you can ponder this yourself. My guess is that you will have thought pretty well about some of these and you have some suspicions, but there's a couple surprises in here that I thought were really interesting too. So the authors conducted a systematic review to look at drug classes that caused orthostatic hypotension. They searched numerous databases for randomized controlled trials that reported orthostatic hypotension as an outcome, as an adverse effect in the studies. And just like a good systematic review, they appraised the evidence. They used a Cochrane risk of bias tool. They used GRADE to summarize the certainty of the evidence. The results of their search, they found 69 randomized controlled trials with over 27,000 participants. 40 of the 69 studies had a low risk of bias. The worst offenders, the medications, not super surprisingly, beta blockers, also tricyclic antidepressants, odd ratios six to seven. These studies had low I squared, so low heterogeneity, but they were also small. Most studies had less than 50 patients, and the absolute risk of the orthostatic hypertension in the studies varied wildly from like one to 25%. So I tried to figure out what the, you know, it's not as always as useful to just look at odds ratios, to look at the absolute risk. And basically it's like pretty common that these medications would cause orthostatic hypotension. The next tier, medicines that still cause some kind of orthostatic hypotension, but not as much. These are twofold increase or up to a twofold increase. Alpha blockers, antipsychotics, and SGLT2 inhibitors, which was a new one to me. And then I think a surprising outcome for me, no difference with calcium channel blockers, ACEs, ARBs, and SSRIs. Several caveats here. Many of the studies excluded older patients, which is actually who you want to know most about. And then there are also very few head-to-head studies. But it's definitely a caution for me about polypharmacy, because if you use more than one of these, that could certainly exacerbate it. I don't know if it's like multiplies or adds the the likelihood. And so this is a meta-analysis that I, even though some of the studies are smaller, it's probably the best study that we'll get to answer this specific question. And we've talked a lot about the overall harmful effects of antihypertensive medicines, especially in the context of trying to keep, you know, low targets. And I'd I'd want to know more general side effects, but this might guide my practice in people who I think are more at risk of orthostatic hypotension, especially probably beta blockers should not be used for hypertension unless you have a really other compelling indication. And I was also impressed that other hypertension meds aren't really as much associated with this
6: outcome. I think the biggest flaw in this study is that they're looking at monitor-oriented outcomes. They're looking at MOOs, not patient-oriented outcomes okay, so their uh, systolic blood pressure went down by 20 millimeters of mercury. But did they fall? Did they hurt themselves? Was there a bad outcome? And so I really want to know the net effect. I mean, if you've got a compelling reason to have someone on a beta blocker, maybe they go into rapid AFib and pass out because they get uncontrolled AFib. How many myocardial infarctions or deaths were prevented because they were on a beta blocker long-term post an event? If they need to be on a medication because you think there's a net benefit, use your good clinical judgment. But I take your point, you know, we should always be trying to minimize as minimalist, you know, polypharmacy. Yeah, I
1: think the patient-oriented outcome, which I recall with some of the analysis of the SPRINT trial, is that orthostatic hypotension does lead to more ER visits when you're trying to aggressively control. So that's a whole other topic, how aggressively should you control hypertension? (laughs) You know what
6: also leads to more (laughs) ER visits? going to the drugstore and taking your blood pressure
1: (laughs) (laughs) right it's like oh
6: stop doing it (laughs) so you all heard it here first ken says don't check your blood pressure (laughs) that's not what he said (laughs) said don't check it at the drugstore and then take it again oh my god it's higher and then take it again oh my god it's higher and then oh my god it's 160 i must go to the emergency department No, uh, hmm. bottom
8: line
1: Beta blockers, tricyclic antidepressants, alpha blockers, antipsychotics, and SGLT2 inhibitors increase the risk of orthostatic hypotension. You might consider this factor when sharing a decision with your patients about using these medications.
6: Paper 3. Abstract number 3 is planned delivery or expectant management in preeclampsia, an individual participant data meta-analysis in the... American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, 2022. Now, the leading cause of maternal and perinatal mortality and morbidity between 34 and 36 weeks gestation is pregnancy hypertension. So the objective of this study was to compare planned delivery, so we're going to deliver you by this date, to expectant management in women with preeclampsia for maternal and perinatal mortality and morbidity. And so in this study, they searched the world's literature for studies having individual patient data with preeclampsia of at least 34 weeks of gestation. And they found six trials with almost 1,800 patients. And there was only one maternal death, thankfully, that was in the expectant group, and zero stillbirths, and one neonatal death, so within the first 28 days, in the planned delivery group. Now, when you looked at this planned delivery versus expectant management for this composite morbidity outcome, there was decreased maternal morbidity when you planned the delivery. It was about 2% as an absolute difference, and it was statistically significant. However, you had increased perinatal morbidity. That was the offset, and it was about mm, almost 4% absolute difference. And then there was no statistical differences in people having vaginal births, so planning it didn't cause more C-sections. Now the individual patient data is considered the gold standard when you're doing systematic reviews, being able to compare the patient to themselves. However, such a study still needs to be evaluated based on the quality of the included trial. So even though you've got individual patient data, that's great, but if the overall trial is crappy, that's not great. So the overall risk of bias in these studies was judged to be low. And the large decrease in the adjusted risk ratio for decrease in maternal morbidity had a large confidence interval around that result. And, you know, composite outcomes, they do have advantages, but they have disadvantages. One item can drive the results, and not all outcomes may be of the same clinical importance. Steve, you remember... (laughs) Jerry Hoffman used to always say with composite outcomes, okay, so you have death, bad, stroke, bad, MI, bad, Perinicia, uh not so bad, right? Right, exactly. And, and that's the example he uses to point out that not all outcomes are the same within a composite. And we see this in this composite perinatal outcomes. It was driven by an increase in short-term neonatal respiratory morbidity in the planned group. But this was offset in the expectant management group of being more likely to be born small for gestational age. So there's a trade-off there. And also, this data does not apply to women with severe preeclampsia. They excluded those women from the studies. And, you know, maybe it's because those women we know what to do with.
1: Yeah, if you turn your absolute numbers that you suggested into numbers needed to treat, it's about number needed to treat 56 for the maternal morbidity and number needed to harm 15 for the primary neonatal composite outcome, which is mostly short-term respiratory distress, number needed to harm 30. And the composite outcomes for the number needed to treat for the maternal morbidity, if I were the patient, I definitely wouldn't want to get help syndrome, renal insufficiency, definitely not eclampsia, which were the most part. And so it's like we land in the exact same place we always do. It's like shared decision-making. And what factors might make you deliver earlier? Maybe if the preeclampsia is a little bit worse, maybe the patient really, that's what they're most concerned about, and they're willing for their baby to be in the NICU a few more days, maybe if it's born early. So it really doesn't give you a definitive answer, but I do think it gives you good numbers that you can talk about
6: your colleagues, about what your practice is going to be, and maybe also with your patients. It's like you are reading my notes we do not share our notes we don't share our thoughts before we record this but you know you're talking my bottom line here so
8: bottom line
6: there are some maternal benefits to planned delivery in women with preeclampsia while having potential increase in perinatal morbidity so this represents a good case for shared decision making
8: paper four
1: abstract number four Comparing two doses of intramuscular ketorolac for treatment of acute musculoskeletal pain in a military emergency department. American Journal of Emergency Medicine, December 2021. And careful, this might be a trick question. What's the correct dose of IM ketorolac for acute musculoskeletal pain in an emergency department? Oh, I know the answer. (laughs) The answer is probably don't use Catorlac for acute muscular skeletal pain in an emergency department.
6: And yet it's used all the time.
1: Exactly. So let's say you're one of those use all the time people. You decide to use Catorlac and we've been hearing for years that maybe you don't need as much as as you think you do. And so the question here is, could a low dose be just as effective as a high dose? Should you choose to use it for acute musculoskeletal pain? And so the goal of the study was to look at low dose versus high dose of im ketorolac for non-inferiority in adults with acute musculoskeletal pain in a military emergency department. We know from listening to us and especially Ken that a non-inferiority trial is designed to demonstrate a therapy being investigated is not worse than an active control. And so I I was a little worried to bring this to you, Ken. And so I looked up why, sort of read a little bit more about why you do a non-inferiority trial. And one of the reasons is because the medication that's being tested, like a smaller dose of Cotorilac can compared to a large one, should have some inherent desirable quality compared to like the standard use. So it's kind of like, well, this is sort of the standard, but maybe we would have a better reason to use this. So let's use a non-inferiority trial. This is a 110-patient single-blinded randomized control trial in an ED. The patients were randomized to either 15 milligrams or 60 milligrams of im ketorolac. The authors used a per-protocol analysis, which we have learned on PCMA that we're supposed to use for non-inferiority trials because a per protocol analysis will give you a more conservative estimate, decrease the possibility of type one error, that is a false positive conclusion. So primary outcome, mean difference of change in pain from baseline to 60 minute between the two groups as reported on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale. So what were the results? Mean difference in pain between the groups at 60 minutes, no difference, and way less than the predetermined non-inferiority margin of 13 millimeters out of 100. No major adverse effects. The minor adverse effects were significantly more frequent in the 60 milligram group, number needed to harm 7 with burning at the injection site being the most common thing reported. So this randomized controlled non-inferiority trial shows that Catorlac 15 milligrams is non-inferior to Catorlac 60 milligrams, we've heard from our pharmacy colleagues for years that there's like a dose threshold to the effectiveness, but we really don't consider Ketorolac to be the first line treatment for acute musculoskeletal pain.
6: So, you know, here's the thing, 15 milligrams versus 60 and a non-inferior saying that 60 is the standard. Steve, you know, the oral dose of uh, Ketorolac is 10. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the oral dose of Toradol or Ketorolac is 10 milligrams PO. Can you think, and spoiler alert, you can't, can you think of any drug that you have to give six times the amount (laughs) parenterally to get the same effect? Like, it's just crazy. Where did this come from? Right, 60? Really? Right, the oral dose is 10. And so we have literature looking at intravenous Ketorolac and this was the classic paper done by my good friend, Sergei Motov, back in 2017. And he looked at three doses for treating acute pain in the emergency department, 10 milligrams, 15 milligrams, and 30 milligrams. Spoiler alert, no statistical difference, right? And so when we're giving IM injections, I think we're just leveraging a placebo effect. So I really don't think that I can knowingly and ethically prescribe a placebo because now i'm deceiving the patient in some way because i already know rationally that this is not more effective but it's like oh if you've ever had a shot of catorlac it stings it burns it's it's got a bite to it right oh you must really really be thinking i'm in a lot of pain or recognizing that i'm a lot of pain because you're giving me the injection
1: bottom line Catorilac 15 milligrams is non inferior to Catorilac 60 milligrams, but there are better options for acute musculoskeletal
6: pain.
8: Paper five.
6: Abstract number five Effect of electroacupuncture on insomnia in patients with depression, a randomized clinical trial, JAMA, open 2022. I don't know if I needed to give a trigger warning there. I mean, are people shocked that I picked another acupuncture paper? I've been good for a while. Ha, ha, like shocked I, from their electro acupuncture. Well, I was uh, yeah. There we go. There was a pun. I was expecting <laughs> you've been such a good boy, Kenny. Yes, you have. Yes, you have. You <laughs> well, haven't picked an acupuncture paper. We had to start out 2023 with a bang. So. Oh yeah, exactly. So the objective of this trial was to determine if the efficacy and safety of electro acupuncture to treat insomnia in patients with depression. So it was multi-center, randomized, double-blinded, sham-controlled clinical trial. All sounds great. It was conducted in China. The population was adults, 18 to 70 years of age, with a diagnosis of depression using the DSM-5. And then the outcome was looking at the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, or the PSQI. And patients getting into this had to have a PSQI of at least 7, because they want to see if this treatment can treat the insomnia that patients with depression can have. And the PSQI is a seven-item tool, so you've got seven things to respond to, and your response can be zero, which is no problem, to three being the worst. And so the higher the score, the worse your quality of sleep, and so the maximum score you can get is 21. So these patients had to have depression and a PSQI score of at least seven. Patients were randomized into three groups. They either got electroacupuncture, sham acupuncture, or standard care. And in the electroacupuncture and the sham acupuncture, they met three times a week for a 30-minute session. And they did that for two months. So over eight weeks, they got three times a week, a 30-minute session of getting this acupuncture, which was sham, or electroacupuncture. Now, for the electroacupuncture, what they did was they got the needles because these are acupuncture needles, and they set them, so they breach the skin, and they they want to achieve this DEQI sensation of putting in the needle. And then they hook you up to an electro-stimulator machine and crank it up as much as you can tolerate it. So they're doing it to the patient's tolerance, that they can handle the electricity going through these um, needles. And then the sham acupuncture is they had blunt needles, so these do not breach the skin. They don't get that sensation of breaching the skin, that D-E-Q-I, and they don't hook it up to the the jumper cables. So the standard care therapy was just non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatments for insomnia and depression as the clinician thought was appropriate. The primary outcome was the change in this sleep score at eight weeks, and then they had a number of secondary outcomes. So they got about 200 patients, three-quarters were women, And the mean age was 50 years. And more than 90% completed the study. All groups saw a decrease in their sleep scores. So all groups did better. But when they compared the electroacupuncture to the sham acupuncture, they had a delta of 3.4 on that 21-point scale. And when they compared electroacupuncture to just carry on with what you're doing, standard care, it was a much bigger delta. It was 5.1%. Change between the two. Now they did check for blinding, and I like this. They assessed for did you know which group you were in, and more than a third correctly guessed their group assignment in the sham group. So more than a third said, "Yeah, I I guessed my group correctly." But how about the electro acupuncture group? Okay, we've set these needles. We want to make sure that you can feel them with this special sensation, and then we hooked you up and say, "Hey, can we go higher? Can we go higher? Is that too much?" 87% knew which group they were in. You know, so that suggests to me that this was unblinded. Anyways, the decrease observed may be statistically significant, but I looked up the minimal clinically important difference for this, and in the paper they said, they referenced two studies saying it would be three. Well, Remember, the difference between the sham and the electroacupuncture, the estimate was 3.4, but the 95% confidence interval was less than 3 So it wasn't statistically significant. The acupuncturists were not blinded, so that could introduce some bias towards the electroacupuncture. And the vast majority of the electroacupuncture group knew which group they were in. And so this would, of course, unblind the participants, introducing even more bias. The outcome measure that they used is a subjective self-reporting instrument, so that has trouble. So this lack of blinding, the known placebo effect, that's probably responsible for the differences observed. And I think that this is supported by the larger difference, the larger point estimate of five point something between the electroacupuncture group and the standard care. And and for me, you probably sense it in my voice. It's just so frustrating to see these types of studies continue to get published without adequate peer review. Well, we know that um, the placebo effect can be proportional to the discomfort and so yeah. this is sort of like acupuncture DS, double strength, right? Because right. you're, you're hooking it up to electricity and zzz, stimulating people, right? So that's making the impact even greater. So, you know, a dose response to the placebo effect. Bottom line. This is another acupuncture study demonstrating an elaborate placebo effect. Paper six. Abstract number six, I think,
1: has the potential to be a bit of a myth buster. This is opioid versus opioid free analgesia after surgical discharge, a systematic review and meta analysis, Lancet, June 2022. So, after you discharge a patient from surgery, do they need opioid medications? These authors conducted a systematic review to review whether opioid prescription after discharge from surgery improved pain intensity, and assessed adverse events. This was funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. So I love to point out when a study is not pharmaceutical industry funded, which
6: is a rarity. This was not done by Purdue Pharma?
3: Right.
1: Big opioid.
6: Yeah. (laughs) Big O. Yeah.
1: The authors searched many databases. They included RCTs that compared opioid versus opioid-free analgesia in patients aged 15 years or older, discharged after undergoing a surgical procedure that was stratified into minor, moderate, or major. And the primary outcome was pain on a 0 to 10 centimeter visual analog scale. The results of the meta-analysis, 47 trials, over 6,500 patients. Most of the procedures were minor, 64%, and most of those were dental procedures. So that affects the generalizability a little bit. The next step was moderate procedures, which is basically all the rest. There were very few major procedures in here, and they were mostly orthopedic or general surgery. There was no reduction of pain in the first day of discharge with opioids versus non-opioids. That's moderate certainty and no difference at any other time point with the opioid analgesia. But not surprising, there was an increase in vomiting with a relative risk of 4.5, and that was high certainty. And there were increase in other adverse events, including nausea, constipation, dizziness, and drowsiness. The trials were largely low quality. And so these are not the best randomized controlled trials, but we probably don't need more reasons not to prescribe opioids after minor to moderate surgical procedures. I think this has definitely been a change in practice in the last five years. And at least most people are, if they give any opioids, it's only like five days. I think gone are the days where, you know, every patient gets 30 days of opioids after their surgery, but maybe they don't need any for minor or moderate procedures.
6: Yeah, and I just would like to point out that the randomized control trials that were included, the prescriptions are mostly for weak opioids. Things like codeine, and big surprise, I mean, they've done studies looking at Tylenol number three or acetaminophen with 30 milligrams of codeine in it, and compared it to an appropriate dose of just Tylenol, and there wasn't a statistical difference with pain control because of the, you know, some people lacking the ability to uh, metabolize appropriately the codeine to morphine, and so you get all the side effects with no extra analgesic effect. And then the other one was tramadol, and I can't remember the last time I've written a prescription for tramadol. I just find it's not effective, and it's not well-tolerated as well.
8: Bottom line.
1: Opioids are not beneficial on discharge after minor and
6: moderate surgical procedures and cause harm.
5: Paper 7.
6: Abstract number 7. This is the prevalence and sources of duplicate information in the electronic medical record JAMA Open 2022. Great study. Yeah, (laughs) good study, big study. Yeah, people know I'm not a huge fan of the current EMRs. I'm not saying EMRs can't be helpful. I'm just saying the current iteration are not great. So the objective of this study was to determine the prevalence of duplication, i.e. cut and paste, of clinical notes and factors associated with that duplication. So it was a retrospective cross-sectional analysis of note duplication rate for all inpatient and outpatient records at the University of Pennsylvania Health System over a six-year time frame. And their primary outcome was how many times the text was duplicated and who was doing the duplication. And they found over 100 million notes with 33 billion words, oh my goodness, with 2 million unique patients. 50% were duplicates, with the prevalence increasing over time from a third all the way to over the majority. Now 54% in 2020 are just duplicate notes. Now when they looked at who was doing it, about 54% of the time came from the same author, so if you had written the previous note, boom, 50% of the time, and 45% came from a different author, so you would just cut and paste somebody else's notes. I think this is a, a good example of how big data can be used. I mean, How else can you search 33 billion words? (laughs) Unless, of course, you have an army of medical students over millions of years going through looking for duplications. The increase of prevalence should surprise no one. There are multiple factors driving this increase in copy and pasting. I mean, over time, clinicians have been, you know, nudged into using EMRs and the pressure of modern medical practice, you know, to to protect ourselves or think when we're protecting ourselves by having this robust note of cutting and pasting. (laughs) They made one really interesting quote. So I wanted to pull it out. They comment that the mean patient record. So, you know, the average patient record in the system now has 56% of the word count of a William Shakespeare's longest play Hamlet.
1: Oh my gosh.
6: I'm going to say there's something rotten in Denmark, but there's also something rotten in my EMR. (laughs) Yeah. And it brings up patient safety concerns.
1: When we do reviews of, you know, like errors or misunderstandings or medication, so often it comes back to, well, this person copied this here. And sometimes it's not even subtle. Like it'll be like day three of X antibiotic. And it's literally like day six. We try to teach our residents, what do you need to communicate to your colleagues? And Obviously, we either for for good reason or not, we're concerned about billing, especially. There's this mostly fake concern about legal liability because having duplicate notes is way worse for legal liability than maybe, you know, including a little bit less information. But just like omit needless words. Make your notes say what
6: they need to say for everybody to understand what's going on.
8: Bottom line
6: duplication of clinical notes is becoming the standard of care and new paradigms need to be considered to improve the electronic medical record. That's a great bottom line. Thanks. I mean, if 54% are doing it, that's the majority. That's the standard. Yep.
0: Paper
1: eight. Abstract number eight, effects of long-term metformin and lifestyle interventions on cardiovascular events in the diabetes prevention program and its outcome study. This is circulation May 2022. The authors start by saying in this article that they will henceforth refer to impaired glucose tolerance as pre-diabetes. So I think, Ken, we might be the only people that are still rejecting this term, although I know that Jerry would very much agree with us that we should not be calling things pre-diseases the much famed and often cited dpp trial the diabetes prevention program was an average of 2.8 years of follow up and reduced cumulative diabetes incidence with intensive lifestyle and with metformin compared with placebo these is much cited but the outcomes are completely disease oriented you patients are a little less likely to make the arbitrary threshold of diabetes If they do, lifestyle is the most effective and metformin less. If you want to link to an editorial that explains why treating impaired glucose tolerance with metformin is not beneficial, I put that in the show notes. So in this study, after the three-year randomized period of lifestyle changes versus metformin, all patients were given lifestyle interventions and then metformin patients were unmasked and they continued metformin. And this is the portion of the study that's referred to the DPPOS or Diabetes Prevention Program Outcomes Study. Patients and doctors, after this period of getting the metformin, then patients and doctors could decide if they wanted to continue the metformin and most didn't. And if the A1c went above 7, then they're discontinued from the study as then they met the criteria for diabetes. And so the purpose of this study was to see If this intervention, after 21 years of very impressive follow-up, could lead to a decrease in cardiovascular events. And the result is, wah-wah, no difference. Major adverse cardiovascular events were around 5 to 6 per 1,000 person years, which is equal in the lifestyle metformin and placebo group. Many patients in the metformin group who did not meet criteria for diabetes stopped taking metformin. So the outcome here, we cannot assume that this means that taking 21 years of metformin is not helpful. And many patients started, you know, statins and hypertensive treatment, which may dilute the benefit of metformin if there is any. And there's a quote from the authors here. It may be that a beneficial effect related to diabetes prevention was not apparent in our study because the development of diabetes in its very early stages may not per se have increased cardiovascular risk above the effect of known risk factors. So the authors pretty much wrote our entire abstract for us there. So both critics of treatment of impaired glucose tolerance and those who campaign for it could find reasons that this article does or does not refute their position. It's not really a definitive study. And the more we keep following these patients in this trial, it actually becomes less and less useful as the years progress.
6: And it gets back to the burden of proof And we start with a null hypothesis, and this would be that treating pre-diabetes does not have superiority over not treating pre-diabetes, and so those making the claim have the burden of proof. And it's called a burden not because it's easy, it's like that old line about mission impossible. It's not easy, it's called impossible, right? So it's the burden of proof, And, and the burden is it's hard. And if the burden hasn't been met, then we as scientists who adopted that white lab coat for credibility should say, well, I guess we just have to accept the null hypothesis. That does not mean we're accepting the hypothesis that it does not work, right? Then we would be assuming a burden of proof. So I can't go out there and claim treating prediabetes for 21 years doesn't work. The nuance, the, the distinction is, Treating pre-diabetes for 21 years has not been demonstrated to have a patient-oriented outcome of benefit. There, so I haven't assumed a burden of proof. I'm just responding to the trial that's been done to say we are going to propose that there is a superiority, and it hasn't been demonstrated. It doesn't mean that it can't be demonstrated or that it isn't true or there isn't some kind of effect size. It's just we haven't seen it yet. And so the time to adopt a claim or to accept a claim is when there's sufficient evidence. And Everybody will have different levels of what they consider sufficient.
1: Yeah, and and the editorial that I link is from the journal American Family Physician, and it's a pro-con of treating so-called prediabetes with metformin. So if you want to read a little more detail about that, you can find that link in the show notes. Bottom line. A several-year period of lifestyle management or metformin does not improve cardiovascular outcomes at 21 years. For those with impaired glucose tolerance, not meeting criteria for diabetes.
6: Paper 9. Abstract number 9, Fever Therapy in Febrile Adults, A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Trial Sequential Analyses. This is in the BMJ 2022, and I think this is a really good informative paper. Yeah. It has some really important concepts to pull out, so I like this one. The objective of this study was to determine the impact of fever therapy in adults. Simple. Simple. Right? They searched the world's literature. They found 42 trials with over 5,100 patients that were adults and they had a fever of any origin. And they compared treatment with either antipyretics or external cooling devices or a combination of both. And they compared that to no treatment with or without a placebo or a sham. Primary outcome it was pretty patient oriented. All cause mortality, you can't be only mostly dead. And then they looked at serious adverse events. So 23 trials looked at 13 different antipyretics. So there was multiple antipyretics that they looked at. They also, out of the 23 trials, 11 of them looked at uh, physical cooling devices. And eight of them looked at a combination of medication and non-medication treatment to lower fevers in febrile adults. Now, 59% were considered critically ill, and two-thirds had an infectious cause for their fever. All trials were assessed using the GRADE criteria to have high risk of bias. High certainty evidence was that fever therapy did not reduce mortality. I need to say that again. High certainty evidence that fever therapy didn't reduce mortality or have an increase in serious adverse events. Now, they had a whole bunch of secondary outcomes. I'm not going to go through them. hypothesis generating. So I like this study because it addresses the desire many of us have in medicine, and that is to normalize a number. And we know that fever is a high metabolic state. And so, of course, we're smart and we can rationalize from a pathophysiologic standpoint. If you've got a critically ill patient and they have this high physiologic state of generating a fever, that could be dangerous to someone who's critically ill. That could be what tips them over the edge. That was my best Shatner, by the way. (laughs) The hypothesis of using antipyretics to provide a patient-oriented benefit, I mean, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. But as is often the case in medicine, when they conduct a properly designed study or trial, we end up not being able to reject the null hypothesis. Now, a limitation of this study is the included trials were of low quality, so that's unfortunate. We only have low quality. However, the burden of proof isn't on us to, I guess, debunk a claim or prove a claim wrong. The burden of proof is on those claiming that lowering a fever provides a patient-oriented benefit. And I don't believe sufficient evidence has been provided to accept that claim.
1: Yep. If it's going to make you feel better to lower your temperature for a while, sure. then you do you. Bottom
8: line
6: In adult patients with fever, don't focus on the thermometer, focus on the patient. Paper 10. Abstract
1: number 10 The risk of post operative complications after major elective surgery in active or resolved COVID 19. Annals of Surgery, February 2022. This was new to me, and so I thought it was really interesting for us to talk about. Since the COVID epidemic has uh, swept our world, March 2020, we've had a lot of delays in surgeries and cancellations. And so it'd be nice to know how to proceed after a COVID-19 infection and considering going ahead with surgery. And so there actually was a guideline from the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation that recommended waiting seven weeks after a COVID-19 infection for elective major surgical procedures. So these authors wanted to query that concept, and they looked at the association between timing of surgery relative to the development of COVID-19 and the risks of post-operative complications. They looked through the COVID-19 Research Database to evaluate this the risk of post-operative complications undergoing 18 major types of surgery. And this was prior to vaccination being widely available. And these surgeries, when they say major, these were pretty major. They were non-emergent, but they were major, like lung resection, mastectomy, colectomy, hip replacement. The data was from March 2020 to May 2021. And importantly, the patients were not included if they were vaccinated. And almost all the patients had mild COVID. So they did stratify how severe their COVID was, but almost all of them were mild. And so they divided them into to groups based on how far they were out from their infection. And then they looked at postoperative complication rates. And so I'll just read these in order. For So pre-COVID, the overall post-operative complication rate was about 10%. What they called peri-COVID-19, which was zero to four weeks after, the rate of post-operative complications increased quite a bit to 16.8%. And that was statistically significant. What they called early post-COVID-19, which was four to eight weeks after infection, their post-operative complication rate was 11.7%. And that was still clinically significantly elevated and then eight weeks after what they called late post-COVID, 11.2%. And so the post-operative complication rates basically returns to baseline eight weeks after infection. So there's definitely a generalizability problem because we don't know how to apply this for vaccinated patients. We have different variants around now than during the study period. But I do think if, you're, if a patient's having major surgery and they're unvaccinated, then I think it's reasonable to discuss delaying surgery. And then obviously you'd have to factor in the harms of delaying surgery in that decision.
6: Yeah, I think this was a really good paper to pick because I think it points out a bunch of evidence-based medicine principles because we have the literature which is informing our care and so zero to four weeks or not being problem after eight weeks, those kind of things. But it informs our care, but it shouldn't dictate our care. We still need to use our clinical judgment and the patient's preferences must be taken into account. Steve, we've seen people who have gotten COVID who had the sniffles. We have seen people, unfortunately, who have gotten COVID and died. So to say COVID positive, COVID not positive, it's a dichotomous outcome that's on a spectrum of severity, right? And so if you have someone who's coming in and you know they're asking for your counsel with regards to You know, the surgery, should I go through with it? How bad is their COVID, I think, needs to be considered. And then how big of the surgery is. This is one of the reasons I really like this paper, because it was like, at the end of the day, it gives you my favorite answer to every question. It all depends. Yeah, and I think the fact that this was
1: major surgeries is really important. Because even if you say, okay, so zero to four weeks after COVID, even if it was mild, your rate of post-op complications increases by 50% relative. Well, if you're having a pretty simple procedure that has a 1% chance of a post-operative complication, then for that to go up to 1.5%, that's really not that big of a deal. And then you're going to factor that in. But I would have pause about having a major surgery after COVID if I could wait on my surgery. And they have really good calculators now. If you go to the American Surgical Association has this, you can calculate the absolute risk of a post-operative complication for the type of surgery, the type of patient, everything. So this is, I think, great to feed into that tool to help your patients make a decision. And I think as family docs, our patients, you know, they're seeing the surgeon, but they still come to us and say, what should I do,
6: doc? (laughs) I always say to them, you're asking a physician about a surgical issue. I'm a physician, <laughs> they're the surgeon. Ultimately, <laughs> they will decide to operate on you with your consent, right?
1: Bottom line post operative complications increase for unvaccinated patients up to eight weeks after infection,
6: after major surgical procedures. What a great way to kick off 2023. I am looking forward to a, a great year with you, Steve. February is coming up, they will not be 10 Papers on Hearts. We are not going to do that themed episode. No, we are going to give you a broad breath because we are generalists, right? We see everything. Uh, So I'm looking forward to February already. Happy New Year and we'll talk to you next time.
0: I think I can sum this all up. Summary Summary, we'll start it off with PCMA. Take it away, Vanessa.
5: PCMA, Article
2: 1. All right, Paper 1, Association of Leisure, Time, Physical Activity, Types and Risks of All Cause, Cardiovascular and Cancer Mortality Among Older Adults, published in JAMA Open 2022. So in this study, they had older adults do a questionnaire about the types of physical activity they did, and then years later, they followed up to see if the type of activity had an impact on their death rates. Turns out, shocker of all shocks, those who exercised had lower mortality rates, and that while racket sports were the best here at fending off the Grim Reaper, in general, physical activity is good for you.
0: Paper 2, Drug-Induced Orthostatic Hypotension, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials in Med, 2021. And I would like to thank the study for giving me the evidence-based answer to the question that a, a medical student asked me not that long ago. Which meds are the most likely to cause orthostatic hypotension? And the answer is here in black and white. Beta blockers and tricyclic antidepressants are the worst by a large margin. And these are followed by alpha blockers, antipsychotics, and, ding, 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 SGLT2 inhibitors. So it's good to avoid these meds in patients who are at risk of orthostatic hypotension. And when we do need to prescribe them, we need to educate our patients about this potential side effect.
2: Paper number three, Planned Delivery or Expectant Management in Preeclampsia, an Individual Participant Data Meta-Analysis from the American Journal of Gynecology, 2022. This study looked at mums with mild to moderate preeclampsia and compared their outcomes based on whether they underwent expectant management versus planned delivery. Perhaps, not surprisingly, things overall seemed to go better with planned deliveries, but it wasn't totally cut and dry. There was a slightly higher risk to the baby with the planned delivery option, probably related to these babies being more at risk for respiratory issues. But for me, this still sounds better than eclampsia. Maybe I am biased or burnt from this past case I had where a patient developed eclampsia, but preeclampsia gives me the heebie-jeebies. And this is definitely a situation that I'm going to be discussing with OBSGYN.
0: Paper 4, comparing two doses of im ketorolac for treatment of acute musculoskeletal pain in a military emergency department. American Journal of Emergency Medicine in December 2021. As Steve and Ken mentioned, this study is kind of useless because we already know that oral Ketorolac is the go-to pain agent and not IM Ketorolac. But for some reason, if you do decide to harness the placebo effects of sticking a needle in someone, giving them 15 milligrams of Ketorolac is non-inferior to the 60 milligram dose.
2: Paper 5. The Effect of Electroacupuncture on Insomnia in Patients with Depression, a Randomized Clinical Trial, JAMA Open 2022. This study looked at the efficacy and safety of electroacupuncture on insomnia in patients with depression when compared with sham acupuncture versus usual care. All groups did better regardless of the treatment, but the differences were not really statistically significant and the blinding was not effective. But now the really important takeaway from all of this is that we need to come up with a deal where we allow Ken to discuss a maximum of one acupuncture paper for the year. We let him get it out of his system and be done with it, which works out well for us because now this counts as his paper
0: for 2023. Ken, you are done. Paper 6 Opioid versus Opioid-Free Analgesia After Surgical Discharge, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Randomized Trials, Lancet 2022. I've recently noticed that fewer of my patients are being prescribed opioids by their surgeons after having surgery. So this is a welcome and growing trend. So very excited to see that Steve and Kent reviewed a paper on this topic. Because I've often wondered, it's great that they're getting less opioids, but is this actually good for patients? So this systematic review and meta-analysis looked at whether opioid prescriptions after discharge from surgery improved pain intensity and adverse events. And what did it find? Well, it found opioids gave no reduction in pain on the first day of discharge, or at any time point thereafter. And they also found that opioids caused an increase in vomiting, nausea, constipation, dizziness, and drowsiness. You know, it's almost as though my surgical colleagues know what they're doing. Of course they do. Keep up the good work.
2: Paper 7, Prevalence and Sources of Duplicate Information in the Electronic Medical Record, JAMA Open 2022. Well, Heidi, this paper scared me. Yes, scared me, because this study showed that now over 50% of notes in the EMR records of 2 million patients were duplicated. This is disturbing to me, because that means someone is literally cutting and pasting bits of their past notes, or possibly even worse, someone else's notes and entering this into the EMR. I keep hearing that the EMR is supposed to help efficiency, but plagiarizing isn't efficient. And if we do this, we also lose the chance to write the next chapter of the patient's story. So have some pride in the story that you're writing in that EMR.
0: Oh my goodness, Vanessa, it's not very often that you and I disagree, but I most strenuously disagree with you being an EMR user in the office and in the hospital where I work. This is not a healthcare provider issue. This is a software issue. These are billing requirement issues and medical legal requirements. Cut and paste is incentivized. It's faster. It's easier to keep track of the 3 million different conditions you're following a patient for in the hospital, whereas novel note-taking and writing is not. So I'll tell you what I do. I cut and paste notes because it helps me remember what issues I'm tracking for my inpatients. And I modify those notes before I save them. So am I guilty of that? Yeah, absolutely. Am I going to change my ways based on this paper? Absolutely not.
2: I guess what I'm curious about is if it's cut and pasting and not modifying. Because if it's cut and pasting, then you're not actually writing the encounter that you just had with the patient. You're copying an encounter that you had previously with the patient. I can see if you cut and paste and then modify the important details. That makes more sense. But if you're just cutting and pasting, what's the point? There's no new information. But it's interesting that it's incentivized. And also, as I don't have an EMR, I really don't have a leg to stand on on this, but
0: I'm still upset. Very upset. As a writer, you were upset. <laughs> that is correct. Okay, so paper number eight, The Effects of Long-Term Metformin and Lifestyle Interventions on Cardiovascular Events in the Diabetes Prevention Program and its Outcome Study. In case you need a little bit of a reminder, the Diabetes Prevention Program happened a long time ago now. It took people with so-called prediabetes and treated them with either metformin, intensive lifestyle changes, or a placebo group to see if they could prevent the progression to diabetes. So this version of the outcome study looked to see if 21 years later, if these interventions that were done for this three-year period of time to see if it made any difference on major adverse cardiovascular events. And the answer is no. People, whether they received the lifestyle management, the metformin, or placebo, they had equal levels of MACE events 21 years later. There are, of course, issues with the study that Stephen can break down in some detail, but I guess it's helpful to know that's something we do for a discrete little period of time, which three years is over a lifespan. It might not impact certain health outcomes many years down the road,
2: Paper 9. Fever Therapy in Febrile Adults, Systematic Review with Meta-Analyses and Trial Sequel Analysis from BMJ 2022. Ken was excited about this study that looked at adults with fevers and the fever therapies that were tried for them. And just to be of note, these weren't just adults with a little cold or a cough or a fever. Some of these folks were critically ill. And the study showed with high certainty evidence, albeit from trials with high risk of bias, so someone can explain that to me at some point, That fever therapy didn't reduce mortality in these adults, so as Ken said, focus on the patient rather than the thermometer. Feel free to lower the temperature if the associated symptoms are affecting the patient, but in general and in most situations, there isn't an inherent risk in the fever itself. Huge caveat here. Obviously, if patients have some dangerously high temperature, or if they are hyperthermic from heat stroke, please ignore everything that I am saying. We are talking about run-of-the-mill fever. (laughs)
0: Paper 10, The Risk of Postoperative Complications After Major Elective Surgery Inactive or Resolved COVID-19 in the United States. Annals of Surgery 2022. This study, I found it to be super useful because I know just chatting with my hospital administrators and surgical teams, they've really been struggling with this topic since the pandemic began. How long after a patient was diagnosed should we wait to operate, considering both operator and operatee risk? Of course, sometimes we can't wait because it's a life or death scenario, but for other procedures, what risks are incurred for the patient? So I was interested to see that the baseline risk for post-surgical complications is 10.3%. In a patient with acute COVID, say zero to four weeks after diagnosis, that risk bumps up to 16.8%. If you wait till four to eight weeks after the diagnosis, then it goes back down to 11.7%. And after eight weeks having COVID, the risk is back to 11.2%. So 11.2% is not that far off from the baseline risk of roughly 10%. So I know my surgical colleagues are talking to patients about this, and uh, a couple of patients have brought it up with me as well. So this is actually really helpful information. Thanks for reviewing it, Steve and Ken.
2: All right, so that wraps it up for PCMA. So let's chat a little bit more about what happened in the rest of the show. Astute listeners out there will notice that we didn't have Hobie this month. We gave the poor man a little bit of a break. So why don't you start
0: off with summarizing the first piece? Take it away, Heidi. Well, thank you, Vanessa. I would love to take it away. And let's start with PMR. PMR. You and Adrian Salim talked about a very rational and excellent approach to diagnosing and managing this inflammatory condition, polymyalgia rheumatica. So one highlight for me was uh, the pearl she shared about the diagnostic testing. For instance, if the CRP is normal, it's unlikely that the patient has PMR. So that's a, that's a helpful hint. But I think what stood out most for me was the amount of crossover between PMR and giant cell arteritis. 20% of patients with PMR will have GCA, and 40% of patients with GCA will have PMR. So if you see one of these, you definitely need to think about the other
4: the generalist.
0: generalist. Moving on
2: next to the generalist, and this time we covered the newborn exam. This was Penny Wilson's piece, and it was really great. And it might seem a little overwhelming because it's so much content in it. But remember, it's all about being systematic and finding a pattern that works for you. Have a listen, read the written summary so you can add newborn exams to the long list of things that you already do. And that way you have an excuse to go visit the nursery and play with tiny humans. They can be pretty
4: cute. Meningioma
0: with Chris Drum. Meningioma. Chris Drum joined us to walk through the presentation, the diagnosis, and the management of this common brain tumor. We all either have or will care for patients with this condition. So have a listen again just to make sure you've got a good handle on the pearls that Chris shares with us. Do it. it. it.
4: Kids do the strangest things.
2: Then comes urgent care and a piece on bronchiolitis. So, bronchiolitis for most kids isn't too big of a deal. And after they go through some feverish, snotty, oh so snotty days, they tend to settle down and carry on as usual. But some other kids can get really sick from this, even needing intubation. So, you really want to know how to treat this and possibly more importantly, when to call
0: for help.
4: Contraception for gender diverse patients.
0: Penny Wilson is here again, lucky us, Penny twice on the show this month, and she came to talk to us about contraception for gender diverse patients. As Penny says, and I'm quoting here, no matter their appearance, if someone with a uterus and ovaries is having vaginal sex with someone with a penis and testes, they could potentially become pregnant. And wouldn't you know it, after listening to this piece, you'll realize that managing their contraceptive needs is not nearly as daunting as you might think it is.
8: Rural medicine
2: Talks. And rounding it all out with rural med, I discuss a case that Dr. Sarah Lalonde and I managed up north, a kid who had had a bloody nose, but in whom Dr. Lalonde noticed some strange-looking marks on the skin. Were they mosquito bites? Were they petechiae? Dun-dun-dun! Be sure to listen to hear what happened with this pretty cute kiddo.
0: Oh, well, it's hard to believe that we're already here, Vanessa, but it looks like another month of Right on Prime has come to a close. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. And if you have time, please check out the other offerings we have here in the MRAP universe, the new Urgent Care podcast and the Urgent Care Fundamentals course. And of course, there's MRAP itself and just so many other things for you to explore. And until we meet next time, keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters.